Hello, Gorilla Americans, and welcome to the Gorilla America podcast. I'm your host, Tim Beecher, and today we have an extremely exciting guest. His name is Dylan Grabowski. He is a writer for Neo News Today. He's a podcaster, an advocate for freedom, and just an overall expert in all things cryptocurrencies. We traversed a lot of territory today. It's a three and a half hour conversation, roughly, and we go through the fundamentals of crypto what you need to know and understand to start playing in the crypto space. So hopefully you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It was extremely illuminating and a lot of good tools came out of it. So with that, I bring you Dylan Grabowski. All right, man, we're on air. Welcome to the podcast. Appreciate you coming on. Um, So (laughs) we're talking off air about some things that you wanted to ask while we're on air. So go for it. Yeah. What's what's the name of your podcast? Well, Grill America. And essentially the, the concept behind it is is just all things subversive, uh, underground, things that are challenging the way that we do business, do human life in the general sense. And, you know, I mean, that's a, a loose category. I, I want to cover a lot of different things and I want to cover people's lives and what they're doing and how they're living in their freedom and their passion and, you know, how they're innovating in their world. And so I, I, I'm nice. really excited to have a conversation with you and talk about all these things that, I mean, acronyms that I don't really understand. And I think a lot of other people probably don't understand. So I, but it's, it, you know, changing the way that we're doing a lot of different things, you know, like I was reading your, you know, summary to me and you're talking about Neo and, um, a couple other things that I just, I'm like, I, I don't know what these things are. I mean, I know what yeah. Bitcoin is. I know what like general non-fungible tokens are and all this stuff. And I think it loosely fits into that category, but you know, I think we can get into those details, but maybe before we do that, you could just give us like a high level, like what it is that you do. I know you write for uh, this publication, you have a podcast, you do a lot of really cool shit. Um, so just give us the high level rundown. Yeah. So, uh, I'm Dylan and I'm psyched to be your second guest. (laughs) Appreciate you coming on, man. When I'm so green. Yeah, no, it's cool. Um, I, the first few podcasts I ever did was with like CEOs of payments companies and app developers. And I remember just getting so nervous every time before hopping on with them because I'm like, I'm just some green guy and this is a CEO who is managing like a multi-million dollar company. But um, it was really cool because they were just a psych to be there. And I've spoken with other CEOs in the time since and their hands are the ones that get sweaty before coming on my pod. <laughs> um, so yeah, as you mentioned, I, I write for a website called Neo News Today and we focus on one cryptocurrency. It's called Neo. And okay. if you're familiar at all with cryptocurrencies you've probably you you said nfts so you've probably heard of ethereum i have yes yeah so ethereum is uh it's called a smart contract platform uh let's take a step back so like bitcoin all it is is a distributed ledger that you and me and everybody else who runs a node can verify the state of the ledger Node being a server somewhere that's running the code, right? Yeah, Node would just be um, a backup copy of every transaction that's ever happened throughout Bitcoin's history. Sure. And, and that's what makes it so unique is that 
historically, since the Medici family in the 1400s, it's been banks that have maintained ledgers of who has credits and debits, according mm-hmm. to the bank. So that's kind of what the big revolution was, was with Bitcoin. Just like with Napster, how it disrupted the music industry because you could download any CD you wanted as long as hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people were willing to upload it so that you could download it. Sure. You know, because like, I don't know. I I remember I downloaded um, Slim Shady, the Slim Shady album. I was like (laughs) young and my parents were like, you can't listen to curse words. And so I went, "Uh, no, I can. Yeah. I was like, well, the Internet says otherwise. So what Napster was, was um, hundreds of people would upload a CD and then you would download a portion of each song from those different hundreds of people. Sure. That's why it was unable to be stopped. That's what Bitcoin is. It's an, it's an immutable, unable to be stopped ledger. And that's simple on paper, but at the end of the day, that's what subverts power from the banks and large financial institutions, which maybe we can get into as we go down these sort of rabbit holes, gorilla rabbit holes, <laughs> gorilla rabbit holes, baby. So all that. Um, so that's what Bitcoin is, is it's just a ledger. And what Ethereum is, is it takes this similar um, model where multiple people are running nodes, just like with Napster, multiple people were uploading files for us to download. What Ethereum did is it allows these nodes to maintain a network similar to Bitcoin's, except now there's programmability. You can code on top of it. And so you can make tokens, you can make smart contracts. And these are just things on a blockchain that uh, when one action happens, then another action happens. If I want to participate in an initial coin offering, then I deliver, I give them Ethereum, the underlying asset, and they gave me tokens. That's what the smart contract says is Dylan gave the Ethereum. Now the project can give him tokens. Now I I have a rough concept of what tokens are, Mm -hmm. but like, how does that actually translate into a thing of value for those that don't, you know, live in this world? Yeah. I mean, this is such a complex question because like there's multiple facets to it. Like what is value? Sure. You know, who assigns value to what? If I go to the Louvre, like, I'm just walking around, and I don't know, like, the significance of the pieces of art I'm looking at, but they're worth tens of millions of dollars. Right, because somebody is willing to pay that amount for them, right? That's what it gives anything value, is what someone's willing to exchange some other good or service for, right? Yeah, exactly, and that's what we're seeing with NFTs today. Like, you are like, why, not you specifically, but somebody's like, why would someone spend $40,000 on that? Right. That's just yeah. a picture of an ape. Well, I mean, I think that's a question that I would love to get into. Yeah, why are people? I mean, because not to be too scattered, but with the NFT space, I think it was something that people are a little confused by with pieces of art. They're uh-huh. like, well, all right, so you have the original digital piece of art, but that digital piece of art can still be copied, correct? Right. So the question that I've gotten from people that are trying to understand it as I'm having these conversations with them is, well, why does that original have any more value than a copy when it's living in digital space? Mm-hmm. And the only thing that I could kind of deduce is that it's kind of like the just the difference between an original piece of art in the physical world and a replica. Even if they look exactly the same, 
it's just really the fact that it's the original mm-hmm. is what gives it value to someone. Is that kind of how people are assigning value to these things? Well, let's take a step back and and you ask like, what's a token and what gives it value? And then we went down like, what's value? Like we went down that sure. rabbit hole. Um, so like, what's a token? All it is is a digital representation of an of ownership over something on a blockchain network. And again, a blockchain network is like Ethereum, it's like Bitcoin, it's just a network of nodes that maintain a history that is forever unchangeable. Sure. So when you have a token, you basically have like a representation of a piece of code on that network. And, you know, on, on NEO right now, I could go make a Dylan token if I wanted to. And I could create uh, one of them and make it a one of one, which makes it non-fungible. And non-fungible means is this cannot be replaced for something equal. Like uh, uh, the Mona Lisa is non-fungible because there's only one Mona Lisa. But my dollar bill is fungible because I can give you a dollar bill and you can give me a dollar bill. And that dollar bill will be able to purchase the same thing at different convenience stores. Sure. So when we're talking about tokens, there are different standards. So we have non-fungible, which typically represents like a piece of art, a JPEG, um, ownership over something in the real world. Um, in the future, we're going to be storing the deeds to our homes, the titles to our cars, um, our driver's licenses. All of this is going to be stored on databases somewhere, whether they're public like Ethereum or they're private like uh, just some database. Um, we'll be able to upload these images the, and, and like my driver's license might become some sort of token. Um, and that would be non-fungible because it's just my driver's license associated with my identity. But we're about to start going into a completely different rabbit hole surrounding like identity, the right to be forgotten on these f- the networks that can never be edited or changed. So maybe we'll stay away from that while we're still covering like what's tokens and what assigns a value. So there are two different token types. There's fungible and non-fungible. Non-fungible typically represents a single piece of whatever. And then fungible could just be like the dollar bill. Um, you know, some tokens like Shiba Inu have a total supply of like a billion tokens. Others like Bitcoin have a total supply of 21 million. So you have to start looking into all these different uh, metrics, scenarios, reasons why you should buy a token or not. But that's a different story. Again, that's investing and speculating and all that. So when we're talking about like what gives value to something um you know what gives our dollar value i i I like to say this and it's a bit hyperbolic but i'm going to ask anyways like what do you think backs the dollar i mean nothing really backs the dollar other than the united states and people's confidence in the united states's ability to essentially back that debt that the dollar bill represents correct yeah i i i go um I go a little bit more cynical and say it's uh, it's it's oil and it's uh, military force. Sure. Because, like, if you fuck with the dollar, like, who's going to come to your country and shut that shit down? Us. Or, well, not us. Like, the American government. Right. You know? And so, fundamentally, there's no value there other than what people perceive to be value. Like, people are like, I'm going to hold the dollar because the dollar's not going to default. Like... Uh, the Argentinian peso will, or the Bolivar, right? You know, or whatever's going on in um, uh, Turkey right now. Like they have massive devaluation of the lira, which is their local standard. 
Now, that goes into principles of inflation and supply and demand and economies. Um, I'm not like an expert on that. So I'll kind of skirt away from that. But I think all value is, is an agreed, uh, like a social agreement on what people are willing to use to trade for goods or services. Right. So like, you know, I can't, um, I can't like ask a professional videographer uh, to record me and accept, you know, a part of my rack as payment. But maybe I could hire you and Cli- maybe a climbing rack, a climbing rack. Yeah. Like Camel- Camelot's gear. It, this stuff's expensive. It costs money and we use it a lot. And like, if you're a certain type of climber, maybe you covet your gear <laughs> a little bit more. We're, we're not talking about his rack, <laughs> his physical rack, but you know, the climbing rack instead, which just for all those non-climbers out there, uh, <laughs> yeah, and, and I bring yes. and I bring that up because I know you're a climber. I know you like to do the type of climbing I do, and I know that you will find value in this gear because that is what you and I would choose to spend our money on. Right. I can't go to like the girl I'm dating who doesn't climb and be like, "Here's a number four, Happy Valentine's Day." <laughs> right. She's like, "This has no value to me." It's useless. In fact, it's probably even worse because it's like, "Oh, you got." you a gift for me or like you got me a gift for you on valentine's day so it could even have negative value sure um you know historically before there were dollar bills before there was even you know gold coins uh tribal communities would use like puka shells as ways to denote value you know so all value is is like what's socially agreed upon and we're kind of getting to this inflection point where cryptocurrencies are starting to be less like the conversations are starting to be less like, yeah, but nothing's backing them and starting more to become like, Oh, what are the cool things that can be done? Or what's the the narrative that's being told around them? So I think, um, you know, I've been in the space for four time four years now. And I think just now we're really starting to see, you know, the zeitgeist kind of give like a, a value of Bitcoin or what a cryptocurrency can mean to people is starting to creep into the zeitgeist into like the modern kind of like social psychology of people. And it's just becoming something that we start to talk about. So I think, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that response to like, what gives this stuff value? Like, what are your questions still? Yeah. I mean, I think so Bitcoin makes sense to me. And I think generally speaking to people in the in general, I mean, conceptually, right? There, you've got some fixed number of things that can be created at any given point in time. It is, it's a rare commodity of some sort, right? And so, therefore, it can be utilized as a store of value. And I think that's kind of just, you know, people are comfortable with the idea of gold and they say, oh, okay, well, gold is rare and therefore, you know, even if I can't really do much with this gold, uh, personally, it has value because it's rare. And so coins that have that kind of characteristic and are just being used as an exchange for funds, essentially, like Bitcoin seems to be utilized for, that seems pretty straightforward. Now, when people start taking art and they're saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm turning this into a non-fungible asset, um, but it can be copied, you know, freely, that's where I think my understanding of what gives that additional value kind of breaks down because 
it's kind of like, well, you know, if you place value on this particular Bitcoin that can't be replicated, it makes total sense. Now, if you have a piece of art that's associated with a NFT, it, that piece of art can be replicated even if the NFT code cannot. So, you, you know what I mean? That, that seems to be where the breakdown in value propositions doesn't add up. Yeah, the the running joke on uh, crypto Twitter is uh, right-click save. <laughs> okay, you, I, don't know, I don't understand what that means exactly. Yeah, yeah, like on your mouse, like you right-click and then you just save the image. Right, okay, sure. Yeah, so it's like uh, somebody says, oh, I just bought this uh, NFT for $100,000 and then someone else makes the joke like, okay, cool, right-click save, like I own this now too. Free, yeah. Yeah, um, and it's so weird this argument is so valid but the one thing that it misses is the um the feeling behind owning and buying an nft mm. um i would equate it to like i don't know you know if you grew up having christmases or whoever's listening to this might not might have might not have had christmas or had a different holiday but it's like it's like the when you wake up on your birthday and like you get a present and you're just so excited and then you open the thing and it was what you wanted. It's this like rush of, endorse, of endorphins. Um, it's kind of like winning a lottery ticket, like when you win uh, an NFT in an auction. When you, sure. So that is one, that's the most powerful thing, first of all, before we even go into value and what NFTs can do for artists that was the thing that I and I've been I've been covering NFTs since 2018. I didn't buy my first one until last year, mm. and so the whole time I was like, "This is doesn't make any sense. Like, where's the value? Why would anybody choose to collect this stuff?" Uh, but like, we forget the fact that like people collect beanie, beanie babies. Right. There <laughs> doesn't necessarily need to be logical to actually have value to someone, right? Right. And people collect watches, and like watches are like some of the most can be some of the most rare assets out there the, the most rare collectibles that you know increase in value over time for just like a small community of like watch collectors so and and these people are willing to pay like exorbitant amounts of prices on other people's watches just because of how rare they are or who made them or how many of each series there are but this is going into like collections and collectors now, but can you clear this up for me, right? Because the difference to, between a watch and an NFT does seem to be, like, I can't go over to your watch and do, you know, control save. Right. And just have your watch on my wrist all of a sudden and be like, yo, cool. You know, sure, you've got the original, but I've got an exact replica that's just as good, does all the same things that, you know, your watch does. And, I mean, doesn't that... You know, intrinsically erode the value of your watch if the, it just can be replicated ad nauseum infinite, infinite numbers of times. I mean, yes, the, the you're logically correct. You're using your brain, and you're <laughs> deriving, uh, you know, a very real conclusion. But this is why I wanted to start this like segment or this talk off with NFTs about the irrationally irrationality of like a psychology of winning something or getting something that you really wanted. Um, you know, like look what love can do to people. It can make people do crazy things. Like somebody who would never hurt a fly could like murder his lover's 
uh, the person he or she is cheating on. Sure. You know? Or even their spouse because of that act. And their emotions, their psychology removed their rationality from their decision-making process. And that's what happened with NFTs. So I was saying it took three years. Somebody made a series of people in the Neo ecosystem and they made a Dylan NFT. And I was like, there's no fucking way anybody's going to have this series of Dylans but me. <laughs> right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. And I ended up spending $400 on getting these five Dylans just so nobody else could have them. That's absurd. Uh, well, I mean, that, that one makes a little bit more sense because you want to own something that represents you. So I, that, that kind of makes sense to me. Now, if you're just talking about some random dancing monkey that has no particular, you know, maybe you're entertained by it. But I, I, but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. I, mean, I think what the point is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that basically people have an emotional response to having primary ownership of something, even if it can be replicated infinite amounts of times. Yeah, I think even further is like winning an auction or winning a bid. Like that is also a similar feeling of like um, winning the lotto or finding a $20 bill on the ground. It's a very fulfilling and satisfying feeling that completely in 30 seconds changed my perspective on NFTs. After I bought my first NFT because I was intrinsically motivated to do so because nobody else is going to own the Dylans but me. <laughs> Then it clicked, like, oh, my God, this is happening for so many other people. So there's this element of, like, psychology and winning. Then there are other kind of factors to start thinking about um, to think differently beyond the right-click-save element because you're never going to get away from that. That's always going to exist with NFTs. Somebody can copy and paste and save that image of your NFT on their desktop forever. So why are they so popular then? What's making people not care about this or even be irrelevant to them? You have a couple things. Um, community, first of all. Like, the people who surround themselves around, like, crypto punks, or maybe you've heard of the, 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 uh, uh, the Bored Ape Yacht Club. Have I you seen, it. like, the apes of pictures of apes yes i have seen the pictures of apes like um grizz the the musician is a picture of an ape now um okay stephen curry from the warriors yeah professional basketball team changed his twitter profile to a picture of an ape okay um and they're all part of this one series called the board ape yacht club and these things are selling for like a hundred grand some of them are selling for a million are they creating their own NFTs of themselves and selling them? Is that how it's working? So it's called algorithmically generated art. So you have this um, algorithm on the blockchain where its feed is various types of different, um, I hate using variables, various types of different variables. But like um, if you're creating an NFT series that's algorithmically generated, you're gonna have, you're gonna draw like 12 different types of hats. 12 different types of eyes, 12 different types of mouths, 12 different types of ears, 12 different types of skin color. And what do you have there? What did I just say? Like seven different things? That, sure. So 12, seven to the 12th equals, you know, millions of outputs. Right. So 
the artist just draws various different types of um, like eyes, hats, whatever the whatever it's going to be, and then the blockchain through the algorithm matches these eyes and hats and creates a one of one u- unique generic piece. Okay. So that's what like the artwork is behind these things. Then that's what's that's what's cool about it from a techno technological perspective. You have this algorithmically generated uh, image on the blockchain. Sweet, if you're a nerd. But I can just like right, right click, copy, paste, save this. Like anybody can own this. Why should I feel good about you know spending a million dollars on it? Well, then you have the community that's associated with the Board Ape Yacht Club, and like who did I just reference owns them? Not like some twenty three year old living in his mom's basement. It was maybe there's one or two of those, but generally Steph Curry and richer folks and people that have status, right? That's kind of the idea behind it. Like. I heard about this guy, and I'm drawing a blank on his name right now, but he's this like YouTuber slash sort of celebrity boxer guy. Um, and Logan Paul. Logan Paul, that's it, yeah. And he sold a, a picture of like a Pikachu or something. I think it was actually an NFT of the card itself, and it sold for some absurd amount of money. And... I don't think it had to do anything really with the card that he was selling, but more that it was associated with him mm-hmm. and he was selling it. So that also seems to be a, a bit of the value store in these things. It's like somebody has a signature and they, you know, they're a professional football player and they sign a football. That football all of a sudden has way more value because that person actually signed it, right? You could you could go and you could draw some that exact same signature on another football, but because that person didn't actually physically sign it, it doesn't have the same value. Mm -hmm. And so that makes sense in the celebrity space where we're trying to say, oh, this is like the actual thing that this person put their stamp on. Now, if some rando like myself that, you know, at this point in my life, I'm not a celebrity, maybe one day, but... Maybe because of this podcast. Maybe, you know, you're getting the first look, guys. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know... It doesn't seem like an NFT really would create any true value because there's no, you know, no one cares whether I signed this particular thing and put my stamp on it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, is that an accurate understanding of, like, why we're seeing the large variance in various pieces that are being put out on the market? It's like, who put it out there first sort of a deal, right? Exactly. And I think what you're saying is tying into what I was talking about, these communities that – that um, embrace these NFTs and, and kind of like are built around them. The only reason you signing a football and, you know, it having value isn't a thing is because like you, Tim, haven't built a community of like 100,000 people who will buy whatever the fuck you say you want them to buy. Sure. Because at that point, you have 100,000 people with economic output who agree with everything. They like what you're putting out there. They subscribe to your they, – they feel like they're a part of your community. Whatever it is that you cultivate and foster, they want to be a part of it. So if you have 100,000 downloaders monthly downloading these episodes, you now have a community who will value whatever you create. That's why Logan Paul was able to sell that NFT for so much because, like – he has a huge following of collectors, like Pokemon collectors. It's gargantuan, let alone his YouTube following. And like what we've seen with 
the ability for people to get funded by their patrons on YouTube is pretty cool. I follow this uh, comedian, Kyle Dunnigan. He, um, really funny. You should check him out. But he basically, like, was making all these awesome YouTube shows. He's been on Reno 911, like, a bunch of other stuff. He's okay. hilarious. But he went on YouTube and monetized the people who know his name. And now he created, like, a subscription model where people can pay, like, $25 a month and get, like, unique commentary and, and funny videos he puts out. He has a community that value enough of his content to pay $25 a month. Makes sense. Right. So so that's where we come into, like, wh- the why of NFTs. Like, why do people want them? Why are people willing to spend so much? Because there's, like, a community of people who value it, and they value their social ranking when they own this thing. Like, in the Neo ecosystem, the Dylan NFTs I was talking about, you had to collect four in order to create the super golden version of whoever that was. <laughs> so, like, I'm the golden Dylan. Oh, very nice. You know? And I mean, like, we, we already knew that. But, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it's forever captured on the blockchain now. This is, this is why I hang out with you. <laughs> Stroke my ego. Um, <laughs> but to, to the Neo community, like, the golden Dylan, probably not something they'll spend $100 on. But, like, everybody knows what it is, and they right. know that, like, somebody had to spend, but like, I had to buy the four NFTs to get this one, and nobody can have it unless I sell it to them. I'm not saying there's a market out there for that, but, like, the Neo community knows the value of these NFTs. Right. Or the rarity, rather, the value that they'll place on it versus what I ask. That's when we start running into, like, free markets and, um, you know what people are willing to pay for what they think is fair. But before we kind of like jump off of uh, NFTs and go into like a free market discussion, because cryptocurrencies are undoubtedly the freest market in the world. Every market that we're a part of in America, housing, stock, anything is impacted by the most rich, powerful, you know, elite who will do anything to at, at best to keep the power, you know, on their side of the table. But there is a part of NFTs that I do think needs to be, um, you know, kind of addressed. And, it, you know, when Ethereum launched, you could buy an Ethereum token for 13 cents. Okay. Today, they're like $3,300. Yeah. And, and, and I think you said something really astute and interesting that actually illuminated my understanding of this entire topic. And I just want to return to it. So you said that really what it boils down to is you have a community of people that values having status in that community, mm-hmm. right? And and really, I, I was thinking about that. And really, that's what we do many, many things in our lives for, right? We We want to have status within a said community. And if that community values a fancy house, a nice car, a anything, whatever that happens to be, then we inevitably are seeking that because we are social beings and we want to have status within communities. And something I've been thinking a lot about recently is that communities have morphed ra- dramatically because we used to be small tribes of people and the status within that small community was based upon your ability to do various things for the community. And we have kind of lost that like close knit social tie. And it Mm -hmm. seems like humans in the general sense are seeking 
any form of community that they can find. Mm-hmm. And so, and what I'm hearing from you is that this is essentially creating a system of community and it's creating a system of value within that community where people can say, Hey, I have status within this group that resonates with me in X, Y, or Z way. Mm -hmm. And we now, you know, I, I have social credits among them. And I mean, there's also, uh, ways in which that we leverage the community that, um, you know, it might not be for any egotistical gain, it's just a thing that happens. So, like, a perfect example, um, in the climbing community, like, if I listen to the way that people talk and, you know, it sound, I just, like, pick up on the sense that, like, they probably have gotten into some shit in the mountains. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, uh, you're who I want to climb with and let's go do some rad shit. That is a status in the climbing community that I value because... I like to go out and do long, scary, tratty days. And there are people who are like, yeah, I want to get into this. And I just bought my first rack and everything. And they're not hitting the tones of the things that I value. But then when I'm listening to someone's story and they're like, yeah, I was up on Sinpin and got wrecked in a <laughs> storm and like had to bail. I'm like, yeah, I've been there. Like, cool. I value the experience that you're providing. And, and to me, as part of the climbing community, that's something that I perceive. Now, is some Gumby in the gym going to think the same thing? Probably not. To them, like, going to Clear Creek Canyon and, you know, spending a day out at uh, Wall of the 90s or whatever is the same thing as going up and doing the diamond right. at a Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, and and this, is, this is funny because the question you're asking ties into the line I wanted to keep going down, which was, back in the day, you had Ethereum, which was 13 cents. That just means that people who were really into crypto in 2014, 15, 16, they got it for super cheap. And today it's $3,000. Like, imagine if you just sunk $500 into Ethereum in 2016. That is probably like, I don't know, like five or 6,000 ETH tokens, which today, 6,000 times 3,300 is a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> non trivial, to say the least. Exactly. Life changing money to almost everybody out there. But to this Ethereum OG, nine ETH tokens was just 13 cents to them. So so the NFTs, the really expensive ones, are a way for people to flex on their own community how, like, strong they are. Like, it's a way for them to, and I'm not saying you ever do this, but, like, it's a way for them to, like, brag about how they had to bail on Sinpin. Yeah. You know, like, that is my my token of my experience. Like, I've been through the shit, and I've gotten out safely, and I know how to do this. Right. That's something that people value, or I value at least, and that's an experience that only one can have that you can't transfer to other people. You're like, this is a legit OG. They know how to navigate this complicated space that we're all trying to figure out and we're creating together in real time. Yes, and just like with climbing, like you're the way you speak about the shit you've lived through, there's no like trying to convince anyone. It's like, this was the fucked up story I went through it's kind of similar with like these exorbitant NFT prices. It's just somebody who is an OG from 2016 saying, I bet this much on Ethereum. And here we are six years later. And my, like my bet was right. You know, like I bet I could climb Sinpin and I had to bail, but like I was right that I could get up and down safely. Right. You know, so you're starting to see a sort of like level of flexing with these NFTs that people are spending a lot of money on. 
which to you, it's like, why would somebody spend $500,000 on this thing when I can just like copy this image? But what it has earned them within the community that they're in is stake. It's this person saying like, I'm willing to spend like my ETH that I could have spent on anything else in the world. I'm willing to spend like $500,000 of my ETH on this NFT because I appreciate what the community offers and you know, what's going on with the NFT. And so like, for instance, with the Bay, uh, Board Ape Yacht Club, it's shitload of money. So a lot of these people are probably like OGs, have a good amount of money. So like, if you own one of these NFTs, you can get into like exclusive parties mm. and go to like exclusive dinners with like other super wealthy people who are just saying like, as it's per- It's like a Bitcoin or like a non-fungible yacht club of some sort exactly and it's a bunch of these people saying and like basically all it is is like i put a stupid amount of money into this nft be- just like you did <laughs> so like, like we've got money to burn and this proves it or it's like if i'm going to burn my money at least i want to put it into something where other people are going to make value of it so now we're starting to enter this brand new world and this is funny because like i'm steeped in crypto and to you an nft is just like a thing you can right click save but, you know, as you're just starting and like other people who we, we call normies. Normies. Very nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, sorry to anyone who's autistic. It's like, it's uh, we're, we're all vanilla. You know, these are the real kinksters over here. Yeah. <laughs> like we call the, the uninitiated into crypto the normies. <laughs> and, you know, it's very normie to be like, why would I why would I spend a lot of money on this when I can right click save? But then as like your brain starts getting wrinkled and you start learning a little bit more, then you're like, oh, community, I can I kind of understand. I can kind of see it. So now we're getting beyond this place where there's a social contract for what an NFT can offer. Like I bought this NFT and now I'm a part of like a group of people and we have this untold social contract to these new sort of ways in which blockchain can grant access to websites, to podcast feeds, where if you own an NFT, then you can gain access to this unique content. So we're starting to move into a place where NFTs aren't this like right click save, potential money laundering, you're super rich, obviously you spent like $500,000, to we're going into a place now where NFTs can actually start giving the creator of a community value to those who are members of their community. So, like, imagine 5,000 people listen to this podcast every month, or you hit your first 5,000. Okay, I'm going to give away 5,000 NFTs, and, and for the simple, like, way to think about this, just I'm going to give out 5,000 keys that grant you access to a VIP portion of my website, mm. where only the 5,000 of you first believers in the podcast are going to have access to unique content. You're going to have access to like uh, uh, an inter- a forum in which only you guys can interact with one another. And the only way people can access this is if they own one of these keys. Okay. That makes a hell of a lot of sense, right? I mean, you're, that is like a very real you know, access to X, Y, Z. And mm-hmm. that makes a ton of sense. And I think what you're saying about the general community is it kind of gives you access to the community at large, right? If you have bought into nft you're kind of now a part of the nft community and and therefore have kind of bought access into this group or being a part of it right Mm -hmm. and it it just seems like you can have either bifurcated sections of that community that are either direct access into a website or some other service 
or you can just be a part of the greater community. Mm -hmm. And then you can start going beyond just like signaling or like you as a community owner uh, appreciating your community by granting them these unique accesses. But we, what the real power of NFTs that really excites me at my core is that, and, and I would love to go further into this, and this is why I'm so into crypto, it's removing third parties that do nothing for anyone except that third party takes a fee. So like, how do I as a musician get my music into people's hands? Well, I gotta sign a deal with Spotify, or I gotta hire a manager, or you know the same thing with movies. Like I have to go to Universal and like sell my movie rights away and all this. Now NFTs are cutting out the middlemen and they can directly connect the creator with their fan group. So like uh, you know Kevin Smith, he directed Clerks, yes, Jane Silent Bob, mm-hmm. uh, Dogma, all these great movies. Well, he recently created an NFT and he auctioned off the rights to one of his movies. Now this is a B minus movie. It's like not a good movie. It's called Kilgore. <laughs> okay. It's like some shitty zombie movie. Um, if Kevin Smith ever listens to this, I hope he did. I, I don't think you're shitty or your movie is. But Dylan thinks, you know, pretty much a shit movie. Pretty, a, I mean, it's like totally shitty. In fact, I've never watched it, but Dylan, you know. Yeah, <laughs> I'm never going to watch it. <laughs> but he, what he did was really cool is Kevin Smith has, um, I would imagine the best way to describe it is kind of a uh, – um, I can't think of the word right now, but um, like a like a cult classic kind yeah, of following, sure. where he has like a diehard group of people who will follow him no matter what he makes because they just like who he is, how he directs his his tone, his voice. So he created this movie, and then he auctioned off, and this is represented as an NFT, and this is where I want to start helping you understand that NFTs represent ownership. Sure. Which is why you have the argument of right-click save. Like, anybody can just copy and paste these things, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing that kind of crossed my mind initially is I was like, okay, this would make sense to me if you took this you know, piece of art and you encrypted it in some way where it couldn't be copied. It was no longer a JPEG, even though it still you know, was being read by some s- software that you know, revealed the image. And it could only be read within the space of this, you know, blockchain. Mm-hmm. And the blockchain contained both the, you know, because what se- seems to be unique about Bitcoin is that it is in your ledger that mm-hmm. sh- says that you own it. Mm-hmm. And it's also everywhere else. And the only way to access it is that everybody else agrees that it is okay to exchange it, right? Mm-hmm. Now, it seems to me like that would have value in the art space if it was the type of encryption that then took that piece of art. And the only way to actually view it was with, if everyone within the chain agreed that you could view it. Yeah. So the, what you're getting at is kind of why I like the Kevin Smith story. Um, because, and, and I'll, I'll skirt around to get back to what you're bringing up. Um, so basically like he auctioned off the NFT and the NFT held the metadata for the rights to the movie. Okay. So when you bought the NFT, you became the de facto owner of the rights to the movie. And the rights uh, are what says what film festivals the movie can play in, what movie theaters it can play in. The rights are what make you money 
sure. off of the movie because you can you can and with those rights you can either say um, no, no one's ever going to see this except my close friends, or I'm going to sell this to 200 theaters every year. Right. You know, it's those rights that give you the the the, um, the flexibility to do that, the ownership to do that. So in this instance, it's not like the visual art piece you're talking about. Um, this is Kevin Smith who created a movie and then he auctioned off the rights to his movie and now he and the company who made it, nobody owns the rights to it except the person who won. So that person can decide who gets to see it and when. So that's an interesting way in which you can give total ownership of like a creative piece to somebody through NFTs. But, you know, you, it's hard to work around right now a platform where people can view this, but they can't copy and save it because the dichotomy and kind of like the, where you're always going to be butting heads with cryptocurrency and with NFTs and, and, and increasingly as things become more decentralized is everything is open source. The thing we hate about Facebook is that they collect our data and then they sell it because they are in a silo and they own that data. Right. What Bitcoin, Ethereum, NFTs, and all this stuff is, Web3, is it's creating global databases that people can move between. So while you're losing, you know, Overlord Zuckerberg owning my data on the centralized end, on the decentralized end, the thing I'm losing is control over, you know, every single moment when somebody can see an image I'm associated with. Because we're now part of like this global. 24-7 interconnected interwebs. Right. And like all cryptocurrencies are, is the first time in history when an economic model has been baked into a computer protocol. Th that's never happened before until Bitcoin came around. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the technology wasn't even available 20 years ago, probably. Mm. I mean, when, when did Bitcoin come around? Well, there's an interesting and fascinating history of Bitcoin that stems back to the 60s and cr cryptography. Interesting. Yeah, so you have all these, there's this, there's this fucking awesome tree of like all these um, scientific and academic publications about cryptography and public key cryptography and private key cryptography and the double spend problem and all these things that you get to as you start running down the, the rabbit hole of Bitcoin dating back to the 60s and 70s because it's all mathematics. This is not computer science stuff. Cryptography is math. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and like it's only by what computers can do that we can utilize these like complex cryptographic uh, functions and functionalities. So this whole tree stems back to like 50 papers and failed experiments through the 90s and 2000s until we land on Bitcoin, which launched in 2008. And the simple thing that it solved is called the double spend problem. Now, no other cryptography or, or digital currency or digital asset could make sure before Bitcoin that if I owned, you know, let's just call it, um, uh, let's just call it Goldcoin. Sure. If I old, owned Goldcoin, it was very hard without a, a central entity to, to run their own database it was very hard for the network to say, well, Dylan Olds gold coin one, but somebody else could, you know, spoof the network and say they'll own gold coin one. Right. 
And when I go to spend gold coin one, you know, somebody else already did and there's nothing I can do because the network allowed the double spend to happen. Right. Now to, to subvert that you needed a centralized entity to run a database that acted as a ledger. Sure. And this is what historically has been the downfall for previous founders of digital assets uh, dating back to the night after the advent of the internet, we've had probably like maybe 10 Bitcoin like projects that could have succeeded, except they never removed the intermediary who maintained the ledger. And that intermediary is always who got fucked by the U S government. And the intermediary probably is also a weak point, right? Because if you take out that intermediary, you take out the system instead of, you know, you take out a node of Bitcoin and you've done nothing at all, right? right. Um, and, and so th to me, that seems like the real true power of any distributed ledger of any kind is that like complete inability to, unless like all the world governments got together and sent, you know, SWAT teams to anyone's home that they believed might have a computer that was storing this information, then there's no way to eliminate it, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, you're touching on something that um, I think is kind of like pertinent to what your podcast represents. And that's like guerrilla tactics. And in my perspective, the one thing that people should fight for, you know, with life and death is their freedom, their ability to be free. 100%. And we're living in a world where like, you know, <laughs> our freedoms are being stolen from us by tyranny. So like, perfect example like there's a quote never let a um a crisis go to waste today we know so much more about covid than we did two years ago and we have science now we have vaccines we know what works what doesn't who's at risk how this variant works and you would think that like the grasp and the brace on society would be laxening but we have you know politicians using doublespeak to scare us into submission when it comes to like vaccine passports and traveling and uh, how you can or can't be safe. We have like our government basically, and, and like Trump kind of highlighted this, like Trump showed how bad our media actually is because he threw a wrench in the total system and they knew how to like tie, they knew how to like tell us about politicians and you know, the underlying groupthink behind like the political apparatus that every politician seems to align on at the end of the day, which is like the money in their pocketbooks. But we have like uh, COVID exacerbating these systems of governments that are overreaching. If you look up in Canada, that's happening right now, the trucker convoy. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm following what you're saying, but I want to just take a step I wanna, back. I want to bring this back, though. Okay. Because, um, you know, after 9-11, I started, um, not even after 9-11, after people were saying the government did 9-11, that's when I started doing my own research into my own videos and just, like, questioning what, you know, the powers that be were saying. And things just didn't line up. I'm not here to say whether it was an inside job or not. I'm just saying, like, that's how I learned to question things. And slowly, over the past 20 years, it's just become apparent that, like, there is a political class who will do anything at anyone else's expense 
so that they can maintain that they have this power, this level, this level of centralized power. Sure. So this is why I loved Napster. It fought the music industry head on by using peer to peer. The people were empowered for the first time. Yeah. This is why I think digital currencies are so great because now people are empowered to not necessarily like have to listen to their governments, uh, you know, fiscal policies, they can opt out. And, you know, essentially, I think this is like why I brought up, um, you know, the, the COVID stuff, because we're getting closer and closer to a world where the truth becomes more and more apparent. And we have people at the top that are like willing to lie to our face. Yeah, I think that's probably always been the case, but and it's very apparent now. And with Bitcoin, this is the first time where you can have an open, transparent ledger where everybody's on equal playing field and nobody's lying to your face. And that's one of the reasons why this is such a powerful technology and also why I was highlighting, like, historically in previous digital asset iterations, there was always a central entity that had to maintain a ledger and that person always got snapped up by the government and they had to shut their project down because there was like Joe Schmo who was the CEO of Goldcoin and right. the, the thousand gold coins. And they're like, no, no, this is getting out of control and we we're going to stop it. But, I mean, so Bitcoins or any of these things really reflect to me a similar thing that I observed when I was living in China. Uh -huh. So there are multiple sort of just like religious uh movements that have started in China. And one was basically just people that were like meditators, but it had this one central guy that was kind of a you know, charismatic leader type. And people followed him in droves. And he was nonviolent. He wasn't trying to overturn the government or anything. All he was really doing was just getting a lot of people to listen to what he had to say. And the Chinese government was threatened by that because ultimately their whole hold over anything is people taking what they say as the word of God or in some capacity, right? Like you must follow what, you know, X entity says. And if there's someone subverting that like attention and that like willingness to obey, then they lose status, they lose power. And it seems like currency is just a, you know, economic representation of the government's ability to kind of push an agenda of any type, right? And if you decentralize that, then you no longer have, uh, you know, the ability for the government to, you know, manipulate these economic factors to get the things that they want out of a system. And therefore, that is a threat to them and their ability to influence individuals towards <laughs> action. And so you then end up having them attack that individual for that very reason, not necessarily because they've done something, you know, theoretically illegal. It's just subverting their control over populations. Yeah. And this is why I brought up like the COVID stuff and 9-11, because that opened my eyes to um, the things we see on TV might not, not always be like what is really happening. Um, maybe there's a narrative being pushed. Uh, you can go as far down the rabbit hole if you want, as you want, as like who controls all the media entities and everything like that. But ultimately, what it really represents is like these are the people who are in power and the things that they do to ensure that they remain in power. 
And the easiest way to do that is with fear. Now, fear comes from like using something scary, but not knowing the whole picture. And that's the beauty of what the internet has given us is it's allowed us to research. So yeah, maybe now I'm afraid, but I can go and see all sides of the story and I can prepare. Where historically it's been, you rely on the government to prepare for you. And of course, this because you have lack of information. Correct. And, you know, like they got away like, um, you know, maybe 9-11 was um, allowed as a reason for us to enter into an act of war, just as Pearl Harbor was allowed for, you know, us to act or, uh, as a reason for us to act and enter World War Two. Uh, a lot of stories were saying that like intercepts yep. were taken hours before. And, you know, if you're a government who's in a failing economy and you know that wartime spurs your economy, like, what are you going to do? Maybe let your country go in, but you can't look like the bad guy. So how do you let that happen? Um, You ignore decrypted, you know, Japanese messages. So this is my thought, uh, you know where I stand is that this is a group of people historically that are a class, a government class, an elite class that want to maintain this. And the way that you maintain the status quo is by controlling the purse strings of the thing that gives people freedom. And I don't like bow down to money, but I recognize money is a tool to give me what I want. And if I want, and if I want to do whatever I want, I need to have more of this tool to allow me to do it. Correct. Now this government is the centralized entity that says we're in, we're in control of creating the supply of this tool, so you have to listen to us for what's good and what's best. This is why they've snuffed out every single centralized entity that was associated with previous versions of Bitcoin because there was always a person or a CEO or something the government could like say, you need to cease operations because your digital currency is, is actively trying to subvert the U.S. dollar, right, and, and like, and you, not not the value of the U.S. dollar, but the control that the U.S. dollar has over people's actions, right? The system, which is, the system of the U.S. dollar, which is controlled by, and I hate to use the word like the elite. It, this is why I like to say like the government or political class, because th- there really is a group of people who, once they get a sniff of power, they want to maintain it, and this is just human psychology. Like, you can look at, um, I don't have any examples off the top of my head, but, like, people who've gone into figures of authority who had nothing but the best interests at heart, and then they became, like, malevolent, evil dictators by the end of their regime. Sure. You know, like, uh, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, I so, and I want to take this time to circle back to something that you said earlier and what I, I inadvertently interrupted you, but what I think we were talking about was ultimately that you have, fuck, well, what did you say exactly? I want to take a, a second what, what and, were I, we? I, and I can cut it out, but basically I, rem- I interrupted you and you were talking about the loss of freedom. And, mm-hmm. and I just, I don't remember your exact words, but you were talking about the loss of freedom and you're saying, hey, you know, we're in a time right now of essentially unprecedented amount of visibility into the loss of freedoms 
uh, and the, the people are stealing them from us. I think were your exact words. And and so what I want to dig into a little bit is like, why do you believe that? I mean, I don't disagree, yeah. but I, I, I want to talk to the listeners about your perception on what, I guess, freedom is and why those freedoms are being taken away or what you perceive as an act of those freedoms being taken away. Yeah, and, and I know that... Um it might sound fringy, like the way that I speak, like the loss of my freedom. And like, it might be like, uh, the soup of the day on the right. I don't even consider myself like a right or a left guy, but it might be the soup of the day on the right to talk about the Canadian trucker envoy. Sure. Who are effectively like using their power to say like, I don't like the way that the government is making me do things because ultimately like what's HIPAA? It's it's the policy in America that says I have the right to the privacy over my health data and my health information. Correct. My potential employer, you know, like imagine if imagine back in the 80s, if like you were gay and you had HIV and your employer had access to your health records and they wouldn't hire you based off of like discrimination of your sexual preference. Right. But they were able to figure that out because of your health records. So HIPAA is like something that's super valuable because it maintains our privacy over our own data. Now, this is kind of where it gets a little sketchy and like where I don't want to come off as like a conspiracy theorist or anything. But like when the pandemic happened, I was scared of shit. Like during the quarantines, I was like terrified. Sure. You know, like, am I going to get COVID? What's COVID going to do to me? Right. Is it going to kill me? Is it going to disable me? Yeah. And, you know, the government did what they could with what was available to them at the time, which was like, let's quarantine. Let's shut the shit down. But like, here we are two years later with all the science and the CDC just told us masks, like cloth masks don't work after they've been telling us for two years to fucking wear them. So it's just, uh, and I don't even know if I'm right or wrong, but it's just a, a point on which that a government can just flip like that and everybody has to act in that way. And so when I'm talking about like our freedoms and how they're being taken away and why I talk about like things up north, it's the whole thing that spurred the trucker movement up north in Canada is at the U.S.-Canada crossing, like, these truckers needed to have proved that they were vaxxed. Like, fundamentally, for a free society to have your government, your, your, your institutional power that governs everybody's life, to now come in and have to dictate your private health freedoms, that's ultimately starting to cross, like, for in America, I would think like some sort of constitutional issue, you know, our, our fundamental right to like, you know, liberty, prosperity and happiness. And so I'm curious about your, because I've, I've heard this, I've thought of this myself. I also have heard people argue that, you know, hey, vaccines have been mandatory to go to school mm -hmm. for a very long time, right? People don't see that as a subversion of their freedom. Um, you know, they, you know, you get the polio vaccine when you're yeah. a kid and no one's complaining about that, generally speaking, because, hey, like, you know, we don't have polio and not having polio. It's eradicated. Yeah. Now, in, in this particular case, how do you see that as an invariance between what's going on now and 
you know, a lot, maybe, you know, answer that. And then I'd really like to get back to what you see as freedom. Yeah. Like, fundamentally. So this all comes back to like, when did I start questioning, you know, what authority told me? And this was like, after I watched like the videos, 9-11, was it inside job? Was it not? I don't know, but that planted a seed for me to like not always blindly trust what I'm seeing. So when it comes to like polio, like rad, that that illness was eradicated. I personally have taken vaccines my entire life. Um, still have, like I'm vaccinated. I don't care if you are or aren't. Um, I think businesses should be able to decide who can frequent their establishment on those guidelines or not, you know. Again, freedom of the individual. Yeah. Um, but what is really fucking with me about um, like the COVID response and like why I am starting to get the sense like it's an attack on the individual freedom is because polio wasn't politicized. You know, I've never ever in my life seen um, any of the vaccinations I had to get as a child, like a right or a left thing. Yeah, I mean, that's a bizarre function of the world we live in right now. I mean, it seems like everything is so polarized, right? We can't even come together on the most basic of items. And, you know, that's one of the things I wanted to do with this podcast is just have conversations with people that have very differing ideas. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's a subversive act in and of itself right now in the world, right? Because to your point earlier about this idea that if you can compel people to action, right, you essentially control value in a system. Um, at least, you know, that's a summary, I think, of what you were trying to say at one point. And, you know, if you divide people and you pit them against one another, it's really easy f- to compel really extreme action in any one of those groups, right? Yeah. You've essentially created a button that you can press and an entire group of people acts in an outsized way uh, in relation to that stimulus that you provided. And that's a lot of power to have over a group of people. So if you successfully, you know, create a divergence between groups, you can very easily control them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, you know, like, look at the people who are in charge of us. Like, do you know how much money Nancy Pelosi made last year? Uh, Insider trading. Uh, I, d- I don't know the value. I've heard it's high though. A shitload. <laughs> and 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 in December she was she was in a press release saying, "Oh no, senators of Congress should be able to trade stock. It's the free market." Like, no, it's not a free market. It's our free market that you get to front run us on. Right. So, you know, again, I have to trust that my government is making the best decisions for me, based off of the people who are in effect leading us. And when, like, this lady is leading us at the top, you know we're getting fucked. And this is why, and, and, and so, like, these are the people that are leading us that are specifically trying to enrich and in wealth themselves while defending it blatantly as not a bad thing at all. Well, like, we're getting fucked by Wall Street left and right. Main Street, uh, mom and pop's business owners, when quarantine hit, they got their shit shut down and you know so many of them i think it was something like 20% of small businesses shut down in 2020 and 2021 because of 
mandates to to close and what's the invariance from that statistic and a standard year do you know that i don't know and I, all i know and i also don't have a source to back this up so i could be full of shit uh but i don't think i am and disclaimer disclaimer um but like I, i'm just trying to like tie all this together with these are the people who are leading us and we're told that our government is acting in our best you know interest and then you know we have the cdc double speaking us in real time telling us cloth masks work cloth masks don't work like this is straight out of 1984 sure we're, we're being double spoke to and so all these things are starting to to hinge on like freedom and this is why um i'm not like an anti-vaxxer or a vaxxer but this is what covid really illuminated for me the fact that when i was in california uh, to walk into a restaurant, I had to show my Vax card. A for-profit entity was mandated by the government to force me to show them private health documents. Right. So, and that is actually totally anti-HIPAA, which ties back to what you were saying before. It, de it degrades the value of that privacy that we have you know, previously enjoyed and therefore is an eroding of a freedom because at that point in time, pre this mandate, right, you had the freedom, if you want to call it that, to you know, ha maintain the privacy of your health data. Mm -hmm. And now you have lost the freedom to do that. So I think that to me is kind of what a loss of freedom entails. It's like you had the right to do X, Y, or Z, and now you no longer have that right. Yeah, and how does the quote go? Um, I forget who said it, but it's about it was about like Jews during the Holocaust when like they were sent to internment camps. Um, the quote is like, uh, you know, at first it was the at first it was the Jews who spoke up and nobody stood for them, so they got taken, and then it was like. Uh, like the gypsies who stuck, spoke up or were like spoken about and nobody stood up for them and they got taken. And it was all these like minority groups of people that this very scary government of the Nazis came after. And then the quote ends like, and then they came after me and nobody stood up. So I got taken, you know? And so really what I'm just trying to say is like, you see these, you see these issues that cascade and it's never an issue until it's on your doorstep. And that's what a direct representation of like the scary things that a government taking advantage of the fear of COVID is starting to like actualize itself as, as like another overreach of this entity that says what I can and can't do. I mean, like the, the shutdowns, the quarantines, like I, I was terrified. I wanted them. I wanted to be quarantined. I was afraid I was going to get sick, but like, look what, a government was able to do and how they were able to impact our lives. Now, the most fringe individual, the, the longest gold bug you've ever met, who's like, I've been in gold since 1992 and never held a dollar ever. Like those guys are gonna like tell you, paint some really scary pictures about how like our freedoms can be taken away and ripped from us. I don't know how bad it can get, but I do know that this is something that's like very tangible and very scary to me. I mean, we know how bad it can get, right? We've, we've witnessed Mao and we've witnessed, you know, Hitler and we've witnessed all these, you know, extreme examples of 
you know, how far it can go when yeah. freedoms are taken away. Now, I just want to, you know, bring up an alternate argument, right, that people will definitely bring up where it's like, okay, in, in times of war, it's normal for societies to essentially go into wartime laws, right, where people are compelled to do any number of things <clears throat> that are, you know, outside the bounds of what typical, can, you know, uh, the rights of you, you as an individual are. And so this could be synonymous to a time of war where national security and the, you know, the health of the nation as a whole is at risk. And therefore, you know, these sort of military time laws need to be enacted in order to protect the well-being of the population. And so, I mean, I, I kind of, see the value in that argument, right? If, let's just say, taking at face value that every action of the government was, you know, in our interest to sort of help the nation and keep us strong and healthy and protect all the individuals that are a part of it. And, you know, that, you know, argument holds water because you're saying, yes, we've outsourced some of the protections of our well-being as a whole to this government entity, and we pay them collectively to look out for our best interests. And so when that's working, it, it's fantastic. You have a collective that has come together towards a shared aim, and yet no individual is you know, solely responsible, yet um, only reaping the benefits from that entity. Now, what happens, I think, is that you have people that take control of this, you know, intentionally kind of benevolent entity mm -hmm. and twisted it into a system for their own benefit. And that seems to be where all governments sort of come off the rails. Because once an individual is corrupted into only seeking their own benefit over the collective and they're using this tool of the collective against themselves, essentially, to enrich themselves, then that whole system no longer works. Mm -hmm. And so I think why revolutions have inevitably occurred across time in human civilization is that these entities are corruptible in their essence, right? Because they're made up of people who are self-serving. And, you know, we all are to a certain extent, right? It's just human nature. And so as those things become more and more corrupted, at a certain point, the only way to break free from the mutation and the, it's like the cancerous thing that this has become is to like cut it out, right? And start over and be like, okay, we got to build a healthy system that is actually, you know, in the collective interest and acts as a arbiter of our protection and our, you know, uh, a protector of our freedom. And I think the United States was founded on that type of thing, right? It's like we are being controlled by groups of people that aren't serving our best interest. You know, and granted, right, it's like, it still was a small group of people. It wasn't all people. It was like white males that were rich. But those people, they wanted more freedom. And so they subverted their, you know, the government that was overseeing them at the time in order to have more control over what they were up to.
Now, and they formed a new government that they felt like was a protector of the freedoms that they valued. And so the Constitution and all these different things are documents that they generated in an effort to preserve their ability to, you know, do what they wanted, number one, and be protected from other people infringing upon what they wanted to do. And you lose that and you no longer have a government that is in your best interest. And, and the, the weird thing about this, though, is right that was a very small group of people at the time mm-hmm. that those things were protecting. And that group of people has, has grown over time, which is awesome. But it seems like in the process, the protections that are against them have dwindled. Yeah, and I I think you're hitting on like you said it really eloquently that these these governments are designed to protect us but they're infallible because at the end of the day they're still ran by people. And people are victims of their own greed or, you know, things that can lead them astray. And this is kind of why I, you know, say 9/11 was a, an awakening for me because that's also the age when YouTube came to be and wikipedia came to be essentially like all this information is at our fingertips now and like if you want to look and see what's going on you can it's not like you know going it's not like growing up in medieval europe and going to church where they speak latin because the the priest specifically doesn't want you to know what's in the bible so they said it in a language that the common man wasn't you know well spoken in or versed in at all so we now have this uh, magical tool called the internet, which gives us all this open source information, and we in real time get to start to develop opinions about who is in charge of this thing that governs our lives. And while it was created to you know, embedder people and empower people, I see the people at the top who are bastardizing their grip on power, um, like, Nancy Pelosi, perfect example, like Biden is, his crime bill is single-handedly responsible for like the mass incarceration, over-incarceration of black and brown people in America because it privatized prisons. Right. Yeah. Which is, oh my God, what a corruption. You know, I mean, that that should not be a for-profit thing. I mean, keeping humans in cages for profit. I mean, that's what we're doing as a civilization right now. And that, that just, I, I, there's no argument in the world to me that makes any sense about that. You know, it's like, I, I don't even know how to go into how strongly I feel about the injustice that is on humankind. Mm-hmm. It's like, I am, we all, you and I, with our tax bill, are paying companies that are for-profit companies that people are, you know, reaping huge rewards from to put people in cages and they're incentivized to keep those people in cages. Mm -hmm. It's like, what kind of fucked up corrupt world are we living in where that is normal? And that was all made possible because uh, one man pushed a bill through. And I'm not going to sit here and say like Joe Biden is racist. I'm not going to sit here and say he was paid off by the private um, uh, prison industry you know, you can go as far down the rabbit hole as you want with all this, but what I am going to say is, like, 
this individual propagated this bill, made sure it got passed, and this is an individual who's in charge of this entity that's supposed to protect me, when fundamentally it's doing things I don't agree with. So, And might actively be harming you. It, it might be, but like I'm not here to put my tinfoil hat on. I'm just here to say that what I'm saying might sound um, extreme to some people, but like these are the things that led me down here. And uh, it took tragedies, like really scary things, to kind of like open my eyes a little bit. And that's why I take notice of like singular events like the Canadian truckers who are just protesting because they don't want their government to force them to share their health information uh, at border checkings or with other, you know, bureaucratic entities. Like, as when, you remember when the COVID lockdowns just started happening and, like, the freedom people were, like, out protesting? Yes. Back then, I was like, this is a public health issue. Yeah, and I agreed. And I was like, okay, freedom, yeah, but, like, get the fuck in your house. Like, we don't know what COVID is or what it's doing to people. And I remember viscerally back then being like, these people are idiots. Yeah. But it's the same people today who are up in Canada that are that are doing this. And now I have a, like, a, a rational, logical connection to what it is they're afraid of. And, like, if you let a government have to prove – if you if you let a government tell a, a a for-profit private entity that I have to prove my health status before being able to conduct commerce in that place, that's not a good that's not good. That is the beginning of like some sort of totalitarian regime that I as an American am fundamentally opposed to. Yeah, I mean I think you know, erosions of your liberties even if they're incremental are dangerous right because you know the frog in the pot of hot water right Mm -hmm. Uh, kind of concept if it happens slowly you don't notice it until it's just oh you're you know you're cooked you're done and so i i agree that you know there are definite erosions of our ability to behave in the ways that we see fit to behave. And I don't, the thing is, is that I don't actually necessarily believe that it's exclusively governments that are the culprit of this, right? Like I think there's very real social factors and that the government is still very much a representation of the views of the people that occupy the society. Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of ways, you know, we're acting as the agents of our own oppression. Mm-hmm. And I think even, you know, it's like, Hey, look, you, you look at the Nazis and it was the same thing, right? Like who's Hitler? He's one dude, you know, he actually, it was, it was the society itself that turned on itself and the individuals within that society that turned on each other. And when that occurred, you had this horrible scourge, upon humanity mm-hmm. and that but really what it was it was like neighbor against neighbor yeah family member against family member i mean you know people that you've been doing business with and eating with for your entire life and you turning on them and you know murdering them right and w- what i see today is that we 
are all too willing as American people to turn on each other. And to me, that's like, no, no, we're, we're one people, you know? Yeah. And the second we forget that, we're at risk of falling into a scourge of our own because governments are more than happy to take advantage of that sort of, you know, div- divisiveness within a, a culture because it gives them tons of power. Mm-hmm. So what was it that <clears throat> enabled Hitler to take power it, and, and for his message to be heard and resonate with so many people, it was utter despair and fear and hurt. Um, the, the government of Germany at the time could not reign control over its own country. The currency was inflating. The job market was terrible. People were hurting so bad that they accepted a Hitler. And it came from a place of fear and terror. And, you know, I'm not going to... Hunger. And I'm not going to sit here and say that that's what's happening right now. But, like, COVID was scary. is scary. And when there's a mass group of people who are afraid of something, I immediately err to, like, who are the corrupt individuals that benefit at the top by manipulating you know, us, the masses. This is why I point out Nancy Pelosi, why I say, you know, I bring up Biden's crime bill, uh, not to mention how shitty of a person Trump was just in general and like how, you know, how fucked up America was for people to think that he was the solution out. So to tie everything together, like, these are the reasons why I pay attention to like the Canadian truckers because I'm just afraid of infringements on uh, people's willingness to fight for what's right. And ultimately I think it's freedom because like when every individual is looking out for themselves inherently society benefits when everybody's like trying to like lift up their own boat, all boats get lifted together. Um, That's not to say that there aren't like groups of people that can help one another. I don't want to get in like to go down that rabbit hole, but so when we have these like corruptible individuals at the top and we have these situations of fear and we've seen like what they've led terrible countries to do in the past, they've led countries to do terrible things in the past. So how do we remove that element of like individualism from, you know, controlling properties that impact societies? Well, I mean, humans are fallible and full of error and they could be wrong, like error is an error and they could be wrong and they could make incorrect mistakes so let's like replace basic processes with math let's replace basic processes that put everybody on equal playing field and this is why i love bitcoin because it's all written down in the code and if you know how to read the code you can read it and it's open and accessible for everybody that makes sense so it it seems like in general what the beauty of any of these non-fungible so, maybe I'm using that term incorrectly. Even. Well, think of non-fungible like um, a piece of artwork and fungible as like a dollar bill. Right. Yeah. So tokens maybe or digital assets is what I use as the catch-all. Okay. Digital assets. That, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, but it's, it goes beyond digital assets, right? Because it, it's saying that we can prove that this is the actual thing that I claim that I have. Uh-huh. Right. 
And so point, the point is, is that you could have contracts of any type that live in this type of space where you're just proving what something is. Mm-hmm. So given that, you – I lost it. Can, can I just, like, give another anecdote? Yeah, please um, do. So the thing that I trust about like Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in these spaces you're talking about is that everything is open source and available for anybody to review. It's the the actual um, technology itself cannot bastardize itself to me. It cannot um, tell a lie to my face to make me want to buy it. It's the people who are involved in these processes that do that. Sure, there are Bitcoin scammers. You can scam Bitcoin out of me or try and convince me to buy it. But like ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the math and the open source and, and like the network that will continue to chug along regardless of the, if there's a scammer or not, if Trump is president or Biden's president. So when you remove the ability for a system to effectively operate in the way that people bought into it, that's when we're removing individuals and creating a network like blockchain, like Bitcoin, that really kind of makes me feel a little bit safe because it's so free market that everybody has equal and ac- equal and, and, and equitable access to it as long as you have a phone and you have the internet. Now, um, maybe this is hyperbolic. Maybe this is just like my personal experience. Um, but you know, while we were also scared of shit with COVID during the initial quarantines, there was also the George Floyd protests. And for the first time in my life, I remember thinking, like, maybe the police can't protect me, or or even worse, maybe these aren't people I want protecting me. You know, like, maybe these are bad people. Some of them are, some some of them aren't. And this just goes along the lines of, like, being presented with information at such an unwarranted pace, historically speaking, that I get to make my own decisions on the fly— And when I'm starting to lose faith in another institutional power, the police, for maintaining my safety, A, or B, you know, are these even people who will maintain my safety? Maybe they will, like, willingly hurt me as opposed to help me. Sure. There are people with power that could not be there to protect me. There are people that have control over violence that may not be there to protect me. Right. So we have these lockdowns from things that are scaring me. And at this point, I wasn't, like is my government going to use this negatively against me? I wasn't thinking like that, but I was terrified of like the police force and like how I didn't really feel safe in them. So I lost this faith in like institutions who were designed to protect me, or maybe it wasn't faith, but like I lost like the blinder over my eyes, like the rose colored glasses came off and it was like, wait a minute, maybe these institutions aren't as perfect as like you were led to believe as a child. When, you know, when I felt like I had no safe place to turn, and this is so stupid, but, like, I would convert my dollars into Bitcoin. I would just buy Bitcoin because this is a thing that's not ran by any government. This is a thing that can't be corrupted by any individual. This is something that anybody can access, and this is something that I can maintain and own myself. So in the midst of being terrified of a pandemic and losing faith in, like, the institutional forces to protect me, there was this thing that's open source that anybody can access that can't be changed, that is what it is, and it was there for me to purchase. And 
honestly, during the summer of 2020, like those Bitcoin purchases, A, they worked out great for me because the price was low then and it's high now. But B, it just like gave me sense of like ownership and control and, and a small element of like feeling safe by taking power back into my own hands. Okay. Now, why do you feel like it's a protector of your freedoms? Because it sounds like that was or a protector of you in general. Mm -hmm. I mean, not necessarily just, a, I mean, protector of you is a protector of your freedoms, your, your freedom to live, your freedom to walk around, to eat food, to do yeah. whatever in the world that is mandatory for your existence. But so even the most base things of existence are freedoms in a way. Yeah. Um, how do you feel like the purchase of that protected you basically from any of those basal freedoms being taken away? Yeah, I mean, so, like, ultimately, you know, what is freedom if uh, not the—so what is freedom if not, like, the lack of barriers? So, like, what prevents your freedom is barriers. Like, um, if I want to go drive to California, a barrier could be I don't have a car. Or right. I can't afford a plane ticket. Or there's no train to get me over there. Or, like, it's going to take forever to hitchhike. All these things come back to, like, some sort of money— being able to purchase the thing that I want to do. And we I don't know if we were on the air or if we were talking about this beforehand, but uh, or maybe we weren't even talking about it at all. But money isn't like the thing I covet. It's the freedom and the things it allows me to do that I covet. Right. You know? So so now and maybe this is because I'm like down the Bitcoin rabbit hole a little too much. And maybe I'm like too much of an internet crypto guy. But <laughs> You know, in 2020, um, a quarter of the dollar supply was printed. Right. So, Which is crazy. Right. So ultimately, you know, your dollar in the savings bank immediately became devalued because there was an increase in floating supply of 25%. So the money you had saved could purchase less because there were more dollars floating around out there. Right. Right. And so if I'm going to say like freedom isn't money, but money is the thing that allows me to pursue the things that grant me my freedom, then to have like a, an entity actively, you know, overprinting the stimulus in a response that granted we were in a pandemic and it was a public health crisis, but like they shut everything down. So it was like they hit a hammer on their toe and they're like, oh, well now we need to like solve this ourselves. So they printed more money. I felt like, um, this wasn't going to be a sustainable solution. Uh, we can talk, I'm not an expert, but like we can talk about inflation, supply, demand, all these things that impacted like my hard earned dollars, right. you know? And so when I'm losing faith in an institution and the only one thing I feel like is uh, like what grants me my levels of freedom is how many of these things I have in my bank account. That's when I started being like, well, at least there's something out there that, it's volatile. Like Bitcoin could go from a hundred dollars to a dollar in a day, but like the technology and everything that's out there, like that's not going to change the market price for how much people are willing to pay for it might. But like, I felt like that was me being able to control something that I felt like I lost control over. And of course with Bitcoin, like when you buy it, you can hold it on your own ledger or your own private, your own private hardware wallet. So you become your own bank. So effectively like, by saying I'm going to convert my dollars into Bitcoin and then I'm going to hold this, you're empowering yourself to become more of a sovereign individual. 
which for the person who's scared, you know, about realizing that these institutions that they thought were there to protect them aren't as perfect as we originally had thought, it was just one way that I could like soothe over these concerns I had. That makes sense. <clears throat> so in a way, it is a system that is unchanging, right? The rules of the system are defined. Mm -hmm. And so it has a certain amount of stability that's built into it just for that reason. Because the rules of any other currency could change at any given time based upon what the government decides the rules will change to. And this is the point that I was trying to get to before when I lost my train of thought around contracts was that your, your rights of any kind, whether it be, you know, the Bill of Rights or, you know, uh, any other law that's in place is essentially a contract between the government and the people and the civilization, mm -hmm. right? And if you have these contracts that are, they can only be changed by one of the two parties, then you have a lopsided type of power system in place where, you know, you could have this contract in place, be adhering to the contract, and no matter how much you have followed the contract, it could get ripped out from under you at some point in time, and all of the work that you've put in uh, on your side of the contract is completely devalued at that point. And so with Bitcoin, it sounds like really what is going on is that you're saying, well, the, the contract rules are always going to remain the same. And you know, the value of the asset that the contract controls might vary, but even if that does, like the value of a home naturally varies based upon a bunch of different things, somebody can't just come along and say, well, actually, you know, I, I decided that the value of your home is less. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, again, like people who are in charge of us, like Nancy Pelosi, who openly front ran Americans in the stock market, like, these are the people who are in power. They're the ones who are deciding the, the social construct and what can what we can and can't get away with if we're even allowed to when they decide to change the rules. Right. Totally makes sense. And so you brought up the these drug laws, and I want to talk about this a little bit because I think it really ties in a lot to what we're saying. Um, you, you're, the, the Biden law that you were mentioning, I forget the name of it, but essentially the fact that you have all these people incarcerated, uh, in private prisons, you know, there's a direct correlation between, you know, certain types of laws and the number of people that are incarcerated in a general sense. And so the, the tighter and stricter you are on certain laws, the more people you're going to have in prisons, right? And I think we're in a time in human history where we have people making profit off of how many people are in cages. Mm -hmm. And you have another group of people that are, you know, maybe the same groups of people in some cases, creating laws that are hyper-restrictive and forcing more people into the prison system. And so it, it's a inherently you know, cyclical, handshaking bullshit deal between just economics. And, you know, anytime you have economic forces that are driving towards something, humans are going to go in that direction. So corruption is bound to occur in that type of a space. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
when when we have this drug war in place that is going after people for non like non you know harmful acts like potheads yeah going after potheads or somebody that sells pot or i mean shit somebody that sells any type of you know psychedelic substance mm-hmm. or or anything that you know isn't like actively or even killing just like people your regular crack user sure yeah like i mean just somebody that's like trying to escape the pain of their life and so they're you know smoking crack um you know albeit probably not a very good deal way to deal with pain but you know it's like to throw somebody like that in prison and essentially profit off of them for the you know probably the rest of their life is to me seems very criminal Mm -hmm. and so I just don't understand how as a civilization we can kind of okay these types of behaviors that to me are just blatant corruption. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was living in China, the thing that struck me is that the level of corruption was so high that even in the, you know, local passport shop, the clerk that you dealt with, right? You have to pay those people off. Right. I mean, and then it just like goes from like the most lowly clerk on up to the highest level, you know, and it seems like, you know, the level of corruption that existed was in direct correspondence with the corrupt level of the government mm-hmm. that is in control of these people and the, and the type of control that it likes to use on people in order to compel them towards actions. And so... When you have systems that are corrupt, they just no longer serve the, the people, but they act as a tool of oppression. And so at, at large, what I, I hear you saying is that, hey, this is a tool for us to store value outside of a system that is inherently corrupt. I mean, you know, people could use this in corrupt ways. They could do this or that with it. However, the system itself is a fixed set of contracts that say this is the behavior mm-hmm. that we can all count on. We can play a fair game. Yeah, the social contract is written. Uh, it's permanently inked, and it is 100% available for anybody to read. Um, I can't say that the social contract is the same for like a lot of government policy. Um, like... I don't know what it what went behind the infrastructure bill last summer and how that got put in, what projects were decided. None of that. I was not part of it. I'm just supposed to be told, like, oh, these people are, work- are acting in your best interest when I don't believe that anymore. So, and, and you even made the comments, like, maybe we need to, like, burn it down or replace it with something else. And well, for the record, I don't know that I believe that absolutely. Okay, but I, I think what I said is that people get to the point where that is the only logical option. Sure, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but like I, I you know, a piece of me agrees very much. Like the end of Fight Club, like when all the corporate buildings were destroyed and like all of America's debt went away. Sure, like that's awesome. But like ultimately, those buildings will just be rebuilt, and the same system will be put into place with those buildings. So, if we recognize that something is wrong and we don't like the way it is and there's no way to change that thing from within the way it operates. Like, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi will just be replaced by someone else who's just as shitty a person. Right. 
you know, and um, arrogant and out of touch with the plight of the modern person who's living in a non-coastal elite city, you know, like the, the, the person who's in charge of, you know, the decisions she makes has no idea how it impacts, like, the person who's, uh, you know, addicted to fentanyl in the Appalachians because they have no prosperity prospects. Um, this is a part of a system that propagates that. So, like, I don't want to see the, I don't want to see America crumble. I don't want to see our institutions crumble. I don't know what that would do for society. I doubt it would be good. But I think that we can slowly and systematically phase out a lot of these processes by implementing fair, open, transparent protocols. And one of the really great ways that I think, you know, crypto can really help this is with this, um, the advent of a DAO. A DAO is a decentralized autonomous organization. It's a way for people to participate in governance, to vote on things using the stake of how much cryptocurrency they hold. So like maybe, you know, an ETH DAO, you and me, we won't make much of a decision in, but like if a brand new project launches up and we can buy a bunch of tokens before, you know, they inflate to crazy prices, then we can have like a larger say in a DAO. Um, that's starting to deal with like economic models of like how much does a token cost or whatnot. But what I'm really trying to highlight is there are ways that people can participate in governance that are a lot more fair than the perceived nature of like our democratic processes today. And I think cryptocurrencies are opening this way. So this is why I want people to like look into Bitcoin, look at what changing, um, you know, our perception of money and value is and how all that can be stored. And then I just want people to like think more critically about the people who are in charge of our current processes because it's not cool at all that like the single mom who worked at Target is still earning the same salary as she was in 2019, but effectively like her paycheck gets her, you know, 90% or, or, or less of what it could three years ago. Oh yeah. No, it's, I mean, the, the people that are the closest to the edge of being hungry or being homeless are the people that are harmed the most by those sorts of policies. And I think it's really ironic because they're touted as being to the benefit of the lowest among us, mm -hmm. right? Economically speaking. And yet actually those systems are hurting those people the most, right? It's like somebody that's wealthy, you know, it's like, hey, I can buy an asset that's actually going to go up in value at the ratio that everyone else's wealth is being undermined. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, and I did that, right? Because I had a home during the time of COVID. I became wealthier, mm -hmm. essentially off of everyone else's value being eroded. And the the messed up thing about that is just it happened just because I had happened to have enough money to own a home, mm -hmm. right? And I had purchased an asset. Now, the people that, you know, they're living week to week, paycheck to paycheck, they have no asset whatsoever. And so they are actually impacted more than anyone, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, if I had more assets, I would have gotten more rich than I did, right? So it's like, the richer you are, inevitably, the more you benefit from the printing of money. And so it's like, this is being sold to us is like, oh, we're helping like 
all the poor people. And it's like, no, you're not helping the poor people. You are hurting them more than anyone. You're actively enriching yourself because you are inevitably, you know, a very wealthy person that has a lot of assets. And, you know, and I say this openly as somebody that has, you know, more assets than probably a good number of people in the United States, right? And I think it's fucked. And you see it, right? It's like, you're like, oh, shit. I wonder, like, why there's so many homeless people right now. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, fuck. You know, we eroded the value of their potential to earn by such a factor that it took them from being housed to being non-housed. And, you know, people can argue that the shutdowns of the government were a big part of that as well, right? Like, people weren't able to work. Right. It's like, who did that hurt the most? I mean, it it didn't hurt people that were super wealthy that much because it's like, hey, look, like I actually am I can still pretty much do all the shit that I wanted to do. And but the the person that's like right on the edge, that person is like, oh shit, now I am underhoused. Now I am I, you know, because I was just barely able to afford enough food for the week. Now I can't, Mm -hmm. you know, afford that amount of food. And I'm hungry now. I'm starving. I'm literally homeless and starving from, hey, like I'm getting by. Where that same incremental, like variance for somebody that's super duper wealthy is like, oh, you know, it's like, I don't have a billion dollars. You know, I've got like this percentage of a billion, you know. So it doesn't really have like a true implication on their lifestyle or their their well-being really at large. And and so I'm totally with you that like really at the the more you erode the value of someone's labor, the more you you know print is related to how much money you print. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so America had a uh, what's called a K-shaped recovery where those with assets, equities, home, any other commodities, simply because there was an increase in cash supply, cash became cheap, then money went into all these assets. And so you have people with excess who already own assets, they appreciated, whereas the people who were on the downside of the K they lost their jobs, um, you know, and these are like, this is the, the, the working class of America, like our barbers, our servers, um, anybody who is in a service industry really are the ones who got impacted the most. And, you know, we have a government that just said, here's a $2,400 in stimulus checks throughout 2020, I think it was. Like, here, go survive. You know, so you can't survive on that. No, you can't. And this is this also stems into like another issue that I have with the media is like people talk a lot about crime in cities right now and how it's increased. But like people are driven to become criminals. I don't think people are born criminals. You know, like you are driven to steal food when you have no food and like you're fucking starving. And like that's the only thing you can get. You yeah. know, so uh, it, it, especially from I mean, there are definitely like just cold hearted people that are going to be criminals. But it, do you definitely the relationship between your level of pro- poverty and your probability of being a criminal are directly related 100 percent. So the more poverty you have, the more crime you're going to have 
across the board. Yeah. And I mean, like, then there are other externalities that are associated with poverty. Like when I was a transportation planner at Caltrans in Oakland, um, West Oakland is like traditionally lower income black neighborhood. And all the kids were growing up with asthma. And it's like, why? And because all of West Oakland is skirted by the interstates and all the kids who are growing up with asthma, it's because they're outside playing and Mm. they're so close to uh, GHGs emitted from the vehicles that like they're physically harmed because of their family's like wealth status. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is the relationship between wealth and well-being internationally, nationally, everywhere, Mm -hmm. right? It's like the more wealth you have, the better off you have the ability to be physically, mentally, emotionally. Your children are more likely to, you know, thrive in the world. I mean, these things that humans have competed over for, you know, all of human history is just, hey, we're fighting over the ability to have the best level of well-being possible, whether that's hunting grounds or it's the amount of money that you have in the bank or the the amount of Bitcoin you have. (laughs) You know, it's like all some mechanism for, you know, achieving the best outcomes for you and the people that are in your tribe, right? Absolutely. And this is why I... Uh, saw the light when it came to Bitcoin and when it came to cryptocurrency, because all you need to participate in these networks is uh, a smartphone and an internet and access to the internet. And like any poor farmer in Africa can get some like shitty smartphone, secondhand Chinese smartphone for like 50 bucks and they can connect to the internet. So (laughs) when, and and like we're benefit beneficiaries of the system, like we were just talking about how our assets went up during the pandemic, which was like, great, great for us. Uh, but like not great for the people who don't have assets. Well, what is the, uh, history of people being granted access to assets? Um, historically it's been limited to like white people. And you can even look at this from like the government, uh, the, the United States government perspective on systemic racism in who could and could not gain access to housing loans. Uh, There was a a policy called redlining by the Federal Housing Authority in the 1950s, and they quite literally would draw red lines around neighborhoods that were not allowed to get housing loans. And you can guess what color people were in those neighborhoods. So you have this system, and and, and by this point now, if we're talking about uh, a family in the 50s who could not buy a home, now they have nothing to hand off to their to their children when they pass on the next generation and now we're on the second generation of that family who doesn't have generational assets that can be passed off so we have an institutional systemic system that is holding people down because of racist policies now when we even go beyond this and we look at the world look at the unbanked population of the world what does it take to gain access to a bank? Some people can't even get a bank account just because they don't have like basic things like a identification card because they're too poor in yeah. some like rural village to have one. So we have these we have proven methods where people have been denied opportunities to purchase to take a loan out to get equity 
uh, with redlining in the FHA in the 50s. And then we still to this day have 1.7 billion people in this world who are unbanked. They cannot gain access to a banking account. And so, you know, while we got to benefit from COVID lockdowns, money printing, our assets going up, the whole K-shape part of this was because people were not granted access to assets that could appreciate in times of rampant money press. So what is the solution to all this? It's creating a fair and equitable network where anybody can participate. So now that poor farmer in Africa who bought Bitcoin is doing a hell of a lot better uh, two years later than, or even a year later than they would have been without any access to any bank accounts at all. So this is why I really like Bitcoin and why I keep talking about freedom and why I like the things about the government are kind of like red flags to me because that's going to impact my freedom. But like ultimately this open source software is going to engage and activate a part of the world that was never ever allowed to participate in open markets. That's a really interesting point. And that's something that was, has never been explained to me or expressed to me about Bitcoin, right? Because I think the perception from the outside looking in, and I, I wonder if this is a valid counter argument to that, is that now that Bitcoin is so utterly expensive, really the only people that have access to it are the super wealthy. Mm. And so you have a situation that might be kind of similar to the early United States, right? It's like a, a set of rules that protects the value uh, for that group that happen to be the most wealthy among us. And everyone else is left outside that system and actually doesn't have the same rights or the same liberties, but that, that group is very well protected. Yeah. And, and so I get, I could see how, you know, while it's very beneficial for those that are participating in that system and have access to that system, I just, I'm wondering if it's really truly as like everyone has access to it as, as you're describing, uh, just uh, fill me in on what I'm missing there. Uh, it's a bit of uh, yes, no, yes and no. So like, yes, you're correct that there is a bit of inequity uh, by um, early market participants. Cause like, if you bought a hundred Bitcoin when it was at $2, like you're, you know, that was a, one of the best investment decisions you've ever made. But we're talking about a world where Bitcoin is not $2. Bitcoin is at like $40,000 or whatever it's at today. So there's a yes and no in here because the person who bought Bitcoin at $2 is now wealthy, um, you know, has transcended to another class because they've, exceeded their previous wealth level. But that doesn't mean that the new entrant can't still use the network to their benefit today. Bitcoin goes to the eighth decimal. So you don't need to like buy a whole Bitcoin in order to be used to use it. You can buy 0.00000001 Bitcoin. Mm, okay. That makes sense. Because I, I was under the impression that if you're using the normal Bitcoin systems that aren't using these like external wallets where somebody's storing your Bitcoin for you or whatever, that you had to exchange individual Bitcoins. But, um, and so for that reason, I thought, okay, well, you know, this exorbitant price for a single Bitcoin, the people that can be true entrants into this 
are only either the super wealthy or people that are like banking institutions. And, and that's not the case. I now, because, you know, I haven't ever gone out and tried to like buy a Bitcoin on the open market. Right. The fuck. I know. Right. I, (laughs) that's, that's actually problematic probably, but you know, I, I have purchased Bitcoin through like Robin hood. And I was like, this is bullshit Mm -hmm. way to interact with Bitcoin. I thought that they were just sort of like holding, I, I didn't even buy a whole Bitcoin. All right. I bought some small percentage of Bitcoin and because I just was like, huh, I'm interested in this. Mm. And, but really, I thought that they had just sort of split up an individual Bitcoin and said, oh, okay, you and are, and now we're holding the ledger for you, which I, they still are, but it's actually the true Bitcoin can be split off and it's still non fungible or non sort of, uh, corruptible or whatever you want to call it yeah it, it's it's fun so bitcoin is fungible okay yeah, yeah. using that no, I get term correct i get what you're saying um but well that's like the whole this this is why i don't like robin hood because you couldn't take your bitcoin off it's stuck on that platform right so like you know you can't buy a hundred dollars worth of bitcoin take it off robin hood and then transact with that farmer in africa who has like the good that you want to buy who he could never sell to a Westerner before the internet existed. Right. Totally. You know? So that's the, that's like kind of what the power is, is like you can go onto an exchange and buy these digital assets, but then you can withdraw them and store them on your own wallet. So you're no longer leaving these assets on like a Coinbase or a Robinhood. Right. Or anything like that. Like you take them off and like you have to manage them. But then at the same time, that allows you to send it to whoever in the world you want. And like now I can engage with people who only accept Bitcoin, who sell goods in a way that I want, you know, the goods to be produced. Sure. Now, I think this is a gray area for a lot of us, you know, vanilla people that aren't you know, deep in Bitcoin and understand how it works on a functional, practical level is with without a Coinbase or Robinhood or something like that, how does just an everyday person go out and purchase some Bitcoin, mm-hmm. right? If they don't want to go through that mechanism, it's like, where do they go? You know, it, wh- who sells it to you? How do you access these people that own them? You know, how do you gain access to that marketplace? Yeah, I don't, I don't think you're going to like my answer. It, the, the only way around that is earn Bitcoin. And, and how does one do that? If like me, I'm a freelance writer. So like any client I take on, I say, you're going to pay me in Bitcoin, not in cash. Okay. Um, that's the most prominent way. There's another way where you can like set up, like imagine you would have to set up a, a one, like an in-person meeting to exchange keys. Like you would have to bring like $2,000 in, in cash to go buy $2,000 worth of Bitcoin it, and they give you a hard drive that has it on there or something along those lines. Assuming, like, you're not about to get robbed. Right, sure, yeah. I mean, which is always, the, you know, the danger of exchanging cash for goods, right? Yeah. Um, somebody can just physically take it off your hands for you. Yeah. There's, um. so then, so th- there's, this is also like a, there's another, there's also like a yes and. Um, so like the, the normal person who doesn't want to use Coinbase, like, how are they going to go get uh, their first Bitcoin? 
um, they either do it through a local peer-to-peer -peer exchange or they earn it for work that they do. Once you, there's, there's like levels to crypto. Like 101 is just buy Bitcoin off of Coinbase. Level 201 is buy a hardware wallet and take it off Coinbase and learn how to store this yourself. And then level three is start using these, these applications that have grown up in these systems. So once you're off of US dollar and into Ethereum, you can participate in what's called DeFi, decentralized finance. And from there, you can, through various different protocols, trade your Ethereum for whatever different cryptocurrency you want. And you're doing this outside of a Coinbase, outside of a Robinhood, outside of like an institution, you're just using the protocols as they were designed. Mm -hmm. And and this is, you know, it's it's already a hard enough thing to understand what the fuck crypto is. It's even harder to understand how there are these markets that are out there now that are only operated by protocols. You know, Vanguard or Charles Schwab or E-Trade or, or my banking account, all those guys manage my assets. They manage this behind closed doors. Now what cryptocurrency has done is it's replaced everything they've done with open source protocols that remove the third party middleman. So whereas if I store my dollar into a savings account, I'm going to get like 0.2% interest or something abysmal because sure. the bank is going to take that capital and loan it out to people who want to borrow it. And they're going to give me a, a small little sliver of that. There are protocols now where I can take my crypto assets and loan them and receive interest in that cryptocurrency at a higher rate than I would by storing my cash in a savings account. And you're doing that through a smart contract, I assume? They're managed by smart contracts. So smart contracts are basically just the things that define specific parameters and then act when both parties have met the parameters that are necessary for the transaction to occur. Sure. So like in this instance, um, if I'm trying to trade Bitcoin for Ethereum, then the smart contract would say, when Dylan puts Ethereum into the contract and Tim puts Ethereum, uh, Bitcoin into the contract, then it will switch users. Okay. And the, and the smart contract just governs that logical process. Sure. Understood. I mean, that's essentially what a contract is supposed to do in any function, whether it's government enforced or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's saying, okay, when these parameters are met, you know, an exchange happens. And, you know, if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, then there's punishments that are going to come down on you. Um, but instead of the enforcement mechanism, in this case being punishment potential, if you don't live up to your end of the bargain of the contract, the the transaction just doesn't occur or whatever rules of the system that are at play sort of enact some, you know, rule and that is carried out. Yeah. If, if I don't fulfill my end of the contract, then you get your asset back. Right. Um, even though we were going to trade it. Right. Um, and, you know, these protocols are offering like insane interest rates. Um, the most conservative interest rate I'm receiving right now is 20%. What? That is awesome. And that's conservative. <laughs> um, a lot of the others are 100 to 200%, some of them even more. And so you're getting these high interest rates because just the 
flow of capital is so liquid and can happen so quickly. Okay. Um, you know, but and 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 I'm not here, sitting here to say that like this is normal. Like I wouldn't expect you know 100% APY, but like 20% is derived because the collateral that I'm putting up into the savings account effectively is then being lent out for other people to use for commerce or to use in ways that they see fit. So I am being incentivized by the whole economic value of what my the 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 assets I loan out. You know, a third party isn't skimming nineteen and a half percent off of that. It's going all to me. Yeah. And that's what the banking models are essentially set up to be today, where we loan our collateral and they do all the middleman work and they receive the highest portion of those yields. So this is like the next level for what cryptocurrency can offer. And it really becomes a way for the person who's been screwed out of the traditional system to build and acquire wealth mm. in, in a way that was not available to your everyday average man. Like historically, if you wanted to gain access to these types of interest rates, you had to like be an insider on Wall Street or in Silicon Valley. Right. Yeah. I mean, even if you're really wealthy and you're investing your money in a hedge fund, I mean, the a good return for a hedge fund is like 5%. Right. And so if you're saying like, you know, minimum that you're achieving is 20%, I mean, you are beating you know, hedge funds that are people that at least are investing in hedge funds. And those tend to be the wealthiest people. So you're saying essentially, it's like, hey, if you get access to Bitcoin, you have then access to interest rates that are much higher than the interest rates demanded by the wealthiest that are participating in the normal system. Yes. Now, of course, with such insane rewards, there comes a lot of risk. And so, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say convert everything you own to Bitcoin and go start doing this stuff. Um, but, you know, like with calculated risk comes, you know, rewards. So, you know, if anybody's ever going down this level, like by the time they get to this place, I like to like completely explain, you know, how can the protocol fail? Um, you know, how can you get, how can you lose access to your capital? All this stuff, because there's always a way. But like, you know, effectively we're entering a world where if you don't take any risk, you get no reward. And by getting no reward, you're losing quicker than you would have 5, 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, which I honestly think is a really interesting lesson in just how systems function. And I think it's exaggerated now, so it's a lot easier to see. But when you have a situation where you have to act or you lose, mm -hmm. and that happens super quickly, it just highlights the fact that inaction all the time, but especially now, is not only a choice not to do that thing, but it's a, it's like an active thing against yourself mm -hmm. in some way. So it's like, if you're not actively moving, you're losing and smaller and smaller increments of lack of movement are equating to larger and larger losses in your overall well being. So it's like, it just highlights how important like being active in your life in general is. Yeah. And this is why I keep coming back to like uh, macro level government sort of infringing on our freedom sort of stuff. 
because, you know, Americans did not grow up with um, being taught how to manage personal finances. If, if anything, I feel like we were actively, you know, not taught this stuff simply by looking at how predatory credit card companies are. Yeah, I mean, let's be real. The <laughs> when when a very important part of a social existence is not touched on in primary education mm-hmm. at all. I mean, you that is an intentional act, right? Somebody made a policy that drove that behavior. That didn't happen at random. And <laughs> when you have entities that are writing policies that are actively keeping people ignorant of something that really drives their amount of ability to control power in the world, that doesn't seem random to me at all. Yeah. And so we have, and this like continues to, to tie into the struggles I have with the powers that be and how, you know, they, um, like, I guess I hate using control our lives. I hate saying that, but you, you know, you. Do you want some water or another drink? Another whiskey, yeah. Yeah, so. Hey, can I? Just whiskey is fine. Yeah, just whiskey would be rad. Um, you like hit the nail on the head, and you basically, and this is why I I love like Bitcoin. You said if you're not doing anything, you're actively losing. Yes. You know, and there's nobody. Who's going to come help you? There's no government that's going to come help you. They're going to say they are, and they're going to do things, you know, like give us stimmy checks. But, like, look at how harmful their actual actions have been to, like, lower class segments of society. Uh, Like the retail workers who lost their jobs and are now, some of them might even be homeless now. Like, Oh, yeah. That's that's the reality, right, is... Many, many people that weren't homeless before are homeless now. Right. And this, we can even go into like a whole other, like there's a whole other issue with how people perceive those who are homeless. And I've I've been guilty of this myself. Um, Being kind of callous to the situations that led them there and just being like, oh, (laughs) you're homeless. How could you let that happen? Not even being aware of like, thank you. Not even being aware of like the fact that they might have lost their jobs, they were teetering, you know, whatever their family history was or any of that. And this is also just adding to that issue is that it's so it's so hard for people to empathize, you know, with those who are hurting. And we tend to say like, oh, there should be a large institution that takes care of these people, but they don't. So this is why I'm so passionate about replacing these institutions and these systems with protocols that are transparent. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, Bitcoin's going to solve poverty or anything like that. Um, but I am saying maybe it'll help us think differently and maybe one day trim the fat from, um, like, inept portions of governments and replace that with, like, actual active, you know, uh, cabinets or uh, departments that instead of this like large institutional bloat, we have like a, a smaller entity that actually does help people. 
and we're not going to get to a government that provides that for us until we see what's happening today fundamentally shift. And I don't think that that happens until it collapses on itself. Hmm. Um, and what makes that collapse? Uh, quite frankly, I think it's like um, eventually it's our fiat dollar system not being backed by anything like gold or anything. And when, like, I don't know, it, when you waver your faith on the unwavering institution, everything cr crumbles real quick. And it's sort of like, uh, like Mike Tyson says, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and I kind of love Mike Tyson, but yeah, he's like. the shit. He's awesome. Um, really hu humble, like uh, a philosopher, even. Oh yeah, uh, people had this perception of Mike Tyson when he was younger as just being this like idiot brute, right? And it's really interesting to watch him have evolved over time. And I don't want to digress no, too much, but I mean, I think it's uh, just a really interesting lesson in the ability for individuals to better themselves, right? Because like Mike Tyson did some fucked up stuff when he was younger, mm -hmm. you know, you know, beating his girlfriend and, you know, ended up in prison for these actions. And, and yet now you listen to him speak and he's like this philosophical, very empathetic, like kind hearted man. And he talks about his experiences in his days of being a fighter. And it was, it's really just really interesting because he, talks about how when he would cry before every fight mm -hmm. uh, because he had to turn into a person that he didn't like in order to be able to perform in the ring. And it just, there's a dichotomy to all of us, I think. And it, I think we need to have the ability to allow people to evolve and to heal and to forgive people for the mistakes that they make because we're redeemable, right? Mm -hmm. And but anyway, so that's my tangent on Mike Tyson. But you were making a point no, well, by I, bringing him up. I actually want to like pull back on that, and like I really appreciate your um, ability to like pull on individualism, and kind of like recognize how it's up to the individual to redeem themselves. And ultimately, like a lot of the things I'm talking about are so doom and gloom because it's like these institutions and how do we replace them. So I guess maybe I want to ask you, you know, as somebody who I'm now four years steeped into cryptocurrencies and like I'm, I've taken on a new way of thinking than I had five years ago before I even was into this stuff. So, you know, what, what, it, when I listen to like other hardcore Bitcoiners, I'm like, you guys sound fucking crazy. <laughs> like you are you know the only people who are patting you on your back are other hardcore bitcoiners other people who believe exactly the way you do sure so maybe you know i, I like to steal proof things so based off of the conversation we've had so far like what is not hitting the point or like what comes off as like dude you are obviously like a crypto guy that is not necessarily like helping make any arguments or maybe even acts as like a blocker to kind of like internalizing some of the benefits that like Bitcoin and other crypto can offer? That's a really good question. And I, I think it's, it, I'll, I'm just going to commend you for 
asking the question, like, how can I be wrong or how can I benefit my argument further? Because that's, that's a very humble thing to do. But I, it's something that struck me. The only thing that I can really think of off the top of my head is kind of the assumption that the institutions themselves are highly corrupt, yeah. right? Because I think, you know, you're operating off of this is, this is the baseline, right? Like that we can all agree on everyone, like obviously the system's super corrupt, right? And they're therefore, right, all of these other, you know, things that you have gone to where it's like, oh, this is protects you against this, that, and the other thing kind of assumes that this, that, and the other thing is a risk. So, I mean, I'm in agreement with you on those things. I, I see the evidence that those things are at risk in society, but I just don't know that I think most people have some degree of faith in the institutions of the world, right? Yeah. And so when somebody comes along and you're like, hey, yo, like, don't trust the institutions of the world, right? That in and of itself is kind of a conspiracy theorist kind of like vibe, yeah. you know? And so while I think all of your arguments are extremely well-founded, it's kind of like, all arguments and all logic is based upon like initial conditions and assumptions. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, we make this one initial conditions assumption that, you know, our institutions are like sometimes corrupt, but for the most part benefit us and, you know, our overall, you know, lending to all of us having better lives. Mm -hmm. Um, and somebody comes along and is like, Hey, that's not the case. And therefore X, Y, and Z, you know, if that person doesn't follow you into, you know, you know, things are corrupt from things are all pretty good to go, then all of the later suppositions sort of lose their weight. Yeah. No, that's a, a very valid argument. Um, and it's funny because I used to work for multiple governments. I've, <laughs> I've worked for uh, two state departments. I've worked for FEMA. I've worked for the county. And, you know, I was like the bogey government man. Um, and I remember hearing, like, people sound like me and being like, you just don't get it. Like, most of the people I know in the government are here to help. We care. Right. Um, Which is true. I, I Overwhelmingly, almost. I, I, I know. In the six years I worked for as an urban planner for governments, I never met one nefarious person who was like, let's subvert society by creating policy. <laughs> right. Nobody was ever yeah, like, like How that. can we twist this to our own benefit? Yeah. <laughs> like Agenda 21. How can we like join the evil powers that be in Europe? Um, but I, I think and, – and it's like so fascinating to hear that that's like how I sound um, – I guess I would equate it to like I recently came around to questioning leaders, individuals as leaders and the impact that they can have on like our institutions mm -hmm. and, and, and it's maybe worrying me to like more of an effect than it should be. But I would um, say it's kind of like the new rock climber who they <laughs> went climbing once and then they have like the brand new harness, the 12 carabiners. You know, like the the Gree Gree and the ATC device, like <laughs> all the new things. Very they, geared out. They just bought it because they're like, I'm into this, and like they don't know why they need it, but like they want it all right now. Sure. So I kind of feel like uh, like that new climber because I just got to this point very recently, like within the past quarter or two. 
Um, to the point where I was like, so, you know, we need a, a, a ripcord against, you know, our, our political institutions. Yeah. Hey, I mean, I'm coming from kind of an interesting perspective with all these sorts of things. I didn't come to it via Bitcoin, but I was pretty damn close to just being an all-out anarchist mm-hmm. when I was younger. You mm-hmm. know, I was like, you know, like anything that controls me in any way is like I'm anti that, yeah. period. Yeah. You know, and I kind of intentionally opted out from a lot of systems early in life because I was just like, don't want to be a part of it. Don't want to be a part of it. And I guess as I've gotten older, it's been interesting to observe myself buy into these systems more and more because I, the, the logic for me was like, well, actually not participating is kind of just like ignoring reality. It's ignoring the environment that I live in. And by not participating in an environment that affects you, you're just kind of being like swept along by the tides of that thing, Mm -hmm. ultimately. Where if you actively are participating and you're using the system to your advantage and you're, you know, doing all these things, then you are taking over more control of your life. And so... What, what's really interesting to me about what you've described about Bitcoin is it's, it's a way of actively participating in a system that, you know, is an active ecosystem. It's an active economic system of sorts that exists outside of the normal system. So you, you get to participate in a system that's beneficial, but it's not necessarily the, the system that comes with all this other baggage mm-hmm. that is problematic you know corruption or whatever mm-hmm. um so it i mean like i i don't want to participate in the system that creates more harm for other people you know i just actively don't want to do that yeah i mean it makes me angry that we have drug laws that imprison like impoverished people for nonviolent acts, mm-hmm. right? I mean, to me, that's a criminal act that we have people in cages for years of their lives for doing some, nothing that harms anyone. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like what's the equivalent of that? It's like me strolling up to you being like, hey, I don't like the color of your shirt. I don't like that you drank coffee this morning. I, I know that you drank co- coffee. I've got witnesses that say you drank coffee. It's time to go in a cage, motherfucker. And I'm going to keep you there yeah, for pretty much as long as I feel like it. And when you get out, like, your life is fucked. And, and I'm like, how is that justice? That's not justice, right? That's, not, that's a system that is, like, actively harming millions of people. And <laughs> But recognizing that, I'm still like, if I don't participate in the system, I am just as much of a victim as anyone else. Mm-hmm. Right? The only way to not be victimized actively is to gain control over a segment of the system that is the environment in which you live. Mm-hmm. You bring up, uh, the, the thing you're talking about brings up something that just fascinated me. And, um, and this is also an issue with cryptocurrency and cryptocurrency networks. Um, is that there's a system and there's a complacency and a willingness to 
just like ignore what's going on out there and just become oblivious. Um, like a perfect example, in 2016, uh, less than half of the American population voted, but for the next four years, almost every motherfucker you knew had an opinion on who the president was. And it's like, where were you when it was your time to make that decision? There is a lack of like drive for people to um, want to go out and do those things. And I think this is also a thing that I really don't like about how big everything has gotten. It's because I feel like my vote doesn't mean anything. You know, I'm just a small cog and a huge, huge machine. And, you know, that disincentivized a lot of people to participate in the fundamental thing that makes this country, like, unique. And what it is is, like, the ability to vote. And these issues are systemic to cryptocurrency as well. Um, I don't want to, like, come on and be like, cryptocurrency is, like, the end-all, be-all. But, like, what a lot of these networks are starting to rely on more and more, especially as you look at different consensus mechanisms. So, ba quickly, a consensus mechanism is, like, the way that the state of the network is agreed upon so that it can continue to grow. In Bitcoin, it's called proof of work. And there's this vast network of Bitcoin miners that have this computer hardware and they use that hardware to work really fast to prove an algorithm. And once that hardware proved an algorithm, they get to like say, okay, this block on the blockchain, all the transactions occurred and they won the right to continue the ledger and they receive Bitcoin as a reward for that. So that's called proof of work. Um, there's also this, this is what Bitcoin mining is, correct? Bitcoin mining is is um, the physical representation of what makes the network work. And what a Bitcoin miner does is they they validate a block on the blockchain. And all validating is is saying this block lines up with all the previous blocks before that and all the previous transactions before that. And then once the um, computer hardware has won the right to say that and cement the block on the blockchain, they then receive a reward. So this is in Bitcoin. This is Bitcoin's um, consensus mechanism is using a vast network of GPUs to work really fast. GPUs for the audience. Yeah, uh, computer processors. A vast network of computer processors owned by anybody who wants to run one of these. So like you could run one, I could run one, any of our friends could run one if they really wanted to. And then they receive a reward for validating all the transactions on that block. Um, this is why everybody has like an energy argument against Bitcoin, because it takes electricity to run these uh, CPUs, these um, computer processing units. But like, it also takes energy and destroys the planet to grow the almonds that I eat. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, the, the palm oil that's in your food is destroying the rainforest actively right now, you know? Yeah. And like my decision to travel to, uh, you know, like the Caribbean for a vacation did so much worse for, you know, on my carbon footprint than, you know, me holding Bitcoin. But that's another argument for another day. Then there's another consensus mechanism whereby it's called proof of stake where you own a large portion of coins of a certain network, and then you say, this person, is a, they're validating the network, and I trust them that they're going to do a good job, so I'm just going to stake my coins to them. 
And those people who have the largest amount of coins staked to them are the ones who determine whether each new block should be added to the blockchain. So in these proofs, so, uh, can we back? Because yeah. uh, I want to understand that part a little bit better. So, like you said, state uh, these people are staking their coins mm-hmm. to them, or essentially, does that mean that they're like banking with that person? Yeah, you're receiving interest for doing so. Right. So it, it's essentially is it, would an entity like this be a Coinbase? Or are yeah, they- actually yes. Um, on so we'll get a little into the weeds, but like on one of the blockchains I like to participate in is called Terra. Um, they built a really cool stable coin that's based off of an algorithm that is effectively competing with the U.S. dollar in a decentralized way. Um, what they have to for oh man. I'm trying to decide how simple to make this. Um, <laughs> High level, and then let's gotcha. we can go into the weeds. So with with um, with Terra, you you have this fundamental purpose for the cryptocurrencies on the network, but then you also have the people who are valid or not the there are people who run these things, but we'll call each node, each validator, we'll refer to them as an entity. So you have these entities that are running. Um, like uh, like AWS, Amazon Web Services, they're just like server farms. That's all they are. So you have these entities who are running like enterprise-grade server farms, but they're using that capacity to secure the Terra blockchain network. Mm. And so hundreds of these validators are proposing that they become the entity that secures the network and it's up to me, the person who owns the cryptocurrency, to stake it to that validator. Now, let's say I have 100 Luna, and I find a validator where I'm like, okay, um, you're going to ensure the security of the network. I can then use my Luna and what's called stake to that validator and say that I use my 100 Luna, like my weight of 100 pieces of this cryptocurrency, to add to your weight that you are the entity that is safe enough to ensure each block. So I'm effectively voting for an entity that I think will maintain the security of the blockchain. Mm, Interesting. And in return, I receive interest rewards in that cryptocurrency for staking to that validator because part of the game theory, the incentive model is if that validator wants to continue re- earning the rewards for adding a new block to the blockchain, then they need me to continue voting for them. So they need to share the rewards that they earn from adding the block to the blockchain with the people who vote for them. Very interesting. So <laughs> this kind of goes against what my initial thought around how block validation was working. Is the idea that I initially had was everyone that has a server farm or even just a single computer that's running the algorithm that is the sort of underlying thing of Bitcoin um, is just like an equal node on a network and they all have to agree in order for any transaction to take place. Yeah, you're not wrong, but that's, that's called proof of work and that's Bitcoin. Right, and so I guess what I'm curious about is 
in that original headspace that I was in thinking about this, I was like, well, you know, Joe Schmo over here that's running the algorithm on his, you know, laptop. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it can only do, you know, I don't know, one validation per year uh, versus like somebody that has a server farm that's running, you know, a million validations a year. The only difference is just like the amount of computing power that they have to do a validation. Yeah. It's, it's called mining a block. Sure. But the, the thing that I didn't know about was the staking of your coin to an individual. And like, I don't understand what the mechanism for that occurring Mm -hmm. is. Right. It's like, if, if I have Bitcoin in a wallet uh, or on a hard drive, right. Uh, But it's on a physical object. How do I stake that to someone else? Mm -hmm. Like what is, what's Mm -hmm. actually happening? Yeah. So this is why it's kind of like a level 201 conversation because what your understanding of what, how Bitcoin worked, that's correct. And that's the consensus mechanism for proof of work. What happened after Bitcoin is people came up with new consensus mechanisms. And all a consensus mechanism is, is how can we in a decentralized manner all agree that the state or the whole history of the blockchain is correct? And so you have all these new methods for doing this without a central entity that can get ripped up by the U.S. government or snuffed out or whatever. Mm. With Bitcoin... So it's, it's layers of protocols. Right. So with Bitcoin, it was like, we will use a consensus mechanism that relies on um, the strength or the number of processing units within a server farm back in the day, like anybody with a laptop could have mined Bitcoin and secured the network. Now it's so much bigger that you need an actual farm in order to be able to compete for the rewards. So what you were describing is called proof of work. In like 2015, 2016, there became a new consensus model, which was called proof of stake, which is we create like 100 million tokens and then we distribute them to people and then people use those 100 million tokens to vote on who they want to secure the network. That's why it's called proof of stake because people are staking like assets on the network to who they believe will be a trustworthy character. Whereas with Bitcoin, all you had to do was buy the necessary equipment in order to be able to participate to win a reward by mining a Bitcoin block. So what what this sounds like to me is currency exchange between entities of of greater and lesser stability, right? Because it it seems like what you have is you have a network that is secure to a point, and it's recognized that there are things that could disrupt that system. And so entities arise that have the capacity to validate the system Mm -hmm. and protect the system ultimately. And people say, oh, well, I believe that you're the most capable of protecting the system. And in the same way that if I have the US dollar, but I think that the yuan is more stable and is actually going to be a better store of my value, I can go out and purchase yuan. Um, Then you're voting actually on, or you're, you're staking that government by owning their currency. Mm -hmm. And so in this sense, you're kind of 
using Bitcoin as a active vote to choose which entity within this blockchain space, you know, is capable of protecting your sovereignty as a Bitcoin owner. Yeah. And we have to, when it comes to uh, the grasp that you just kind of like conceptualized, we have to remove Bitcoin from this because Bitcoin operates where it doesn't matter who is trying to validate the network. The one who has the fastest processing unit is going to be able to do it. Then we migrated to proof of stake, which is where I vote with my wallet who I want to secure the network. So uh, something that I still don't fully understand is how the actual exchange occurs. Oh, it's um, because it's all on blockchain and it's all managed by smart contracts. Um, so again, this is like, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this, but like level 101 is just buying Bitcoin. Level 201 is taking it off the exchange and putting it on your hardware wallet. Level 301 is like doing these next processes. This is level 301. So um, Bitcoin and Ethereum right now are not assets that you stake to secure the network. So uh, Cosmos, Atom, is like one of the more popular ones. You buy Atom on Coinbase. You withdraw it to your wallet, which is off of the exchange and on your computer. And then you use your wallet to stake to the Atom network who you think should be a validator. And then you're receiving all your rewards on that blockchain network. So I understand the concept, but how does the actual staking occur? Like what, what is happening, right? So mm -hmm. somebody, I'm assuming, has to write a smart contract that behaves in a specific way and someone else like essentially buys that contract or assigns that contract to themselves in some way, right? Mm -hmm. So are, do you have like community contracts that are used for standard exchanges between entities? Is that what's going on? Or is each individual responsible for writing their own smart contract? Yeah, you just asked a, a great question. And, and the first answer is what's called uh, liquidity pools and, and how you can trade assets between um, one another using a non-centralized entity. But like, I think what you're really asking is how does all this get validated? Like, how can I ensure what's going on? What are the behind the scenes processes? And if I own this one cryptocurrency, then there's a smart contract by the validator, or there's a smart contract on the network that allows me to point my cryptocurrency towards the validator and say, this is the individual. I want this cryptocurrency on my wallet to be supporting and voting for. And then you're locked into that until you choose to unstake. And then you can either delegate it to a new validator or you can just take your funds off of the governance portion of the network and just hold them without staking them. So that makes sense. So essentially what it sounds like is you're using one coin to buy another. And mm. the Bitcoin being the original and the smart contract being the the other is that is that a misunderstanding um i'm probably not there first of all let me just caveat this with there's always a shitload of information with crypto so it's hard to or it's it's easy to get things conflated um bitcoin let's remove bitcoin from our thought processes when we start talking about this and let's start thinking about like Ethereum and other different types of cryptocurrencies. Because with um, 
with st- there's two things going on. There's one that's staking, and when you stake, you're just saying I'm taking X of my cryptocurrency, saying I vote for Y validator, and when I lock my tokens into a smart contract that says I'm allowing this person to use my weight of holdings to vote on the way that they feel, like I assumingly stake to them because I agree with the way that they think and the way that they vote, I'm going to appreciate, like I'm going to, I'm going to be in line with. Yeah. And if I disagree with the way that they vote or I just don't like them anymore, I can choose to unstake and remove my delegation to their voting power and then at, and then point that or delegate it to another validator. So this is a way, this is proof of stake. When it comes to Bitcoin, there's no voting, there's no validating, there's no staking, there's none of this. There's just proof of work. Just proof of work, which is the consensus mechanism, which which is is um, empowered by the people who have invested into these computing processing units, solely dedicated to maintain the infrastructure and, and, and the validity of the, of the Bitcoin infrastructure. Now what we're talking about with proof of stake, it's next level. There's multiple things you can do with it, but like I get a cryptocurrency, I can say I want you to vote for me and then I receive rewards for doing that. The next level of what we're talking about, which kind of like is easily conflated, is the ability to trade between assets without a central entity like Coinbase. And so this is what I was talking about with liquidity pools is let's say I own both Bitcoin and Ethereum and I'm not planning to sell them at any time, but I want them to work for me. So I'm going to provide them as capital into a liquidity pool so that if you wanted to trade between Bitcoin and Ethereum, but you didn't want to use Coinbase, you could use this liquidity pool. And because I provided the capital for both sides between the liquidity pool, you can effectively use my Bitcoin and my Ethereum to trade your Bitcoin to Ethereum. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's it's actually so you're like a decentralized bank. Yeah, exactly. DeFi. This is what DeFi is. Decentralized finance. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah. so and and to go even further, because I'm providing this my capital as the collateral, which is allowing this protocol to operate in this way. Every time somebody does a trade on this liquidity pool, I receive fees. Mm, that are managed by smart contracts, I assume. That are distributed to me based off of the, um, the proportion of assets I have available in the pool. And this is an instance where we're removing a third party. And typically, the bank would do this. They would, they would use my capital and then loan it out to people. Now, I'm depositing my capital directly into a protocol that's meant for people to switch to trade between just the two assets that I provided liquidity for. And because I provided that capital, I am now the capital provider. There's no third party and I receive the fees Mm. every time there's a trade between those two assets. Right. I mean, it sounds like there kind of is a third party. It's just of a different form because isn't the third party the person that's running the computing that is validating all these transactions that are occurring in this smart contract space that is the decentralized bank? Because, I mean, what you're saying is, hey, I'm staking this third party Mm -hmm. to validate these transactions. And therefore, I mean, 
it's it's just not like it, it's like a distributed entity across a bunch of different players. It's not like one central person. It's a bunch of different people that are performing the function that a bank normally would perform. Right. This is also where people start to get lost when it comes to cryptocurrency and DeFi, because um, you can't use the tokens you staked to protect the network to also provide liquidity for people to trade between. Mm. So there are now new game theory models and different incentives for different ways to use this cryptocurrency within the network. I can either use my Atom, which is I'm just using because um, it's the next best behind Ethereum. I can use my Atom to stake to secure the network, or I can use my Atom to provide liquidity into a liquidity pool and receive fees. So now I need, as a, as a participant in these cryptocurrency networks, I need to figure out which one I care more about and which one I want to, which uh, process I want to take, uh, participate in. Because sometimes the staking interest is lower than the interest from providing the capital for people to trade between. That's a really fascinating choice to make, right? Because I think it, this is a fundamental choice that we all make day to day, right? We're, we're choosing between a ratio of risk versus reward, mm -hmm. right? And the, the risk is the less you protect yourself and the more that you take some sort of active gamble on something, um, you know, the, the less you're protected, but more you have the ability to make gains. And it seems like you know, there's always a relationship between that. If you go too far into the, I'm taking risk on everything all the time and I've protected myself none, eventually your luck is going to run out mm -hmm. and you're going to implode. But if you are too far on the, I'm just sitting here protecting everything that I have, you are outpaced by people that are out there competing. And so there's a relationship between those two things and a balance that has to be struck if you really want to not only protect but grow your asset pool. Mm -hmm. And this is also why like, um, I come back to monetary policy and the amount of money that was printed in the past couple of years because you know, we're about to hit a place and it's going to be really scary um, where new money isn't being printed and like we have to deal with our decisions and like we have to deal with inflation and we have to deal with the ability we have to deal with the fact that like my interest rate and for my savings account is going to go lower and lower and I'm only going to lose my purchasing value to inflation. So now it's almost like we're being forced to go into these riskier sort of processes and networks and, and investments just to be able to beat inflation. Right. And we're kind of like forced into this way right now. Um, but I don't think that's bad, especially when it comes to cryptocurrency and, and like it teaches people a lot real quick about all sorts of things, um, macro policy, uh, personal finances, you know, I'm sure a lot of things I'm describing, y your question gets answered, but you have two new ones. <laughs> I mean, I think that's the, the case with any good question, right? It, it leads to more unknowns. Um, but yeah, I would say I've, I've got tons of questions. However, I think something that's really interesting about what you've been saying is that basically it's a replica of 
all of the institutions that we hold dear as a civilization in a way, because you're saying, hey, look, here's something that people care about. And people are able to openly vote on people that they think are capable of securing their rights and freedoms in some sort of way, which is what our institutions are intended to do. Mm -hmm. And you're able to have a sort of distributed group of people that are all participating in and benefiting from the security of the system. And so it it has all these good qualities of good institutions without what seem to be some of the downfalls, which are like the human corruption that comes into play and all this different sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I guess my, my question is, all right, so what's the catch? Where where can people get involved in this to corrupt it? Because there's got to be some way, right? Because yeah. humans are always you know, taking systems that are always inherently imperfect and figuring out a way to turn them in a way that they weren't intendedly, originally intended to be used for, right? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, there are, first of all, humans err they have error in their ways. So one of the first fallibilities of all of this is the coder fucked up. Right. And fucked up the code. And when you fuck up a code that's managing millions or billions of dollar in assets, like that's what's at risk. Right. And which is why people don't really necessarily trust new coins as much as they do a older established coin, right? That is like more trusted. Right. Which is why like if anybody's ever getting into crypto, I say just like buy Bitcoin, buy Ethereum. Those are the two OGs. They're the ones who, if this whole shit is going to be around in 10 years, they're for sure going to be the two that are here. Sure. So, so there's that there's, there's the, the fallibility of the developer. And then, um, with all these new processes, they're being built from scratch. And every single technological process that you deal with, whether it's an app on your phone or your computer or um, logging onto a website, there's a stack of technology that goes into that. And with these new cryptocurrency uses that come around, you're just seeing these different crypto protocols getting stacked on one another and because everything is so new a lot of uh like the major hacks we're seeing are people figuring out ways to manipulate different input points in the stack Mm. so that different protocols communicate with one another at a different time and it creates like it it shows that they have like a false amount of a cryptocurrency Because they manipulated the processes of all the different stacks that went into like a crypto based app. So like when I'm talking about like liquidity pools that you provide your Bitcoin and your Ethereum into and then you receive a fee from people who trade between them. Not only are we now dealing with the Bitcoin protocol and the Ethereum protocol, but we're also dealing with a new protocol that is connecting the two. Mm And then we're also dealing with another protocol that allows for the trading between the two. And all the hardware that all that's based upon. Right. And so now what you're seeing is the people who are... 
people are incentivized to break these systems because what do they win? Millions of dollars in cryptocurrency. Right. And, and this seems to be one of the downfalls of crypto in the general sense that people have talked about is that you're not insured, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, governments provide insurance to banks. They're basically saying, hey, you know, the entire power of the society is behind your investment. You know, you can't just lose it. You know, it's insured up to, you know, X amount or whatever. Um, But, you know, with Bitcoin, it's like, you know, you have a Bitcoin wallet and somebody walks up to you and points a gun in your face and grabs your Bitcoin wallet and runs away. There's no insurance, right? There's no one that's going to come help you out in that situation. So if you're a really wealthy person and you have, you know, a billion dollars and you have that stored on the network and somebody somehow gains access to that, there's no recourse, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm curious about how, like your thoughts on that. And I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, mechanisms that people are developing to try to protect against these things, but it's like, how, how do you, you know, justify being a hyper wealthy person and having a large amount of your assets in such a space that is uninsured? Yeah, I mean, uh, the key tenant when it comes to cryptocurrency is this thing called not your keys, not your coins. And when you buy Bitcoin um, on the network, regardless of whether you bought it off Coinbase or you bought it off like some stranger on the street and then they just gave it to you, Mm -hmm. on the network, you have this wallet or this entity purchased X amount of Bitcoin. Okay. So that is forever stored on the network. And that means that, you know, um, once I withdraw it off the network and store it on my, on my, my own personal hardware device, that no matter what, that will always be like lined up in the history of the blockchain. So that's why, that's what's called the public key, where if you send me an, uh, an identification number of like me sending you one Bitcoin, then forever our two addresses will be associated with that. And as long as you never moved that Bitcoin, it's on your hardware wallet. Now your hardware wallet and and just any wallet in general um, stores what's called a private key. And when it comes to Bitcoin, there are two keys for a transaction. There's a private key, which is the, the key, the, um, the half of like my personal identification what's what's a better way to put this my private key is like my half of what's called a hash and a hash is what powers all these transactions on the networks it's just like the technical term for it my private key says that it is associated with the public key on the network which is what you and I can look up and see how much bitcoin you hold or how much bitcoin i hold Sure. And with my private key, with the amount of Bitcoin that you can see I hold on the network, with my private key, I have access to that Bitcoin. Sure. So if I lose this private key, then this Bitcoin is forever going to be on the network, but I'm never going to be able to access it again because I lost access to the private key. Right. So isn't the risk, though, that you have this private key that you're holding that represents X amount of Bitcoin? And somebody decides, hey, I'm going to rob Dylan. Yeah. I'm going to go over to his house with a gun, and I'm going to make him give me his private key. Then I have his key. Yeah. And I can go take that Bitcoin off the network and 
or use it in some way. I mean, like somebody could still kidnap you and be like, put your ATM pin into the ATM and take all your money. Well, true. However, isn't the variance there that if somebody does that, then I am insured yeah, by yeah. the bank, which is insured by the federal government. Yeah, yeah. No, I want to come back to your question. I was just like trying to describe like what a private key is and what a public key is for the phrase, not your keys, not your coins. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And I, that was very illuminating. I'm just trying to understand, right, that there's there's this mechanism and I'm just, I don't think I quite fully no, grasp the protection. No, so, so this is, so like, again, this is why I wanted to like say like for every like Bitcoin you see on the network, there's a private key associated with it. And this is what the phrase, not your keys, not your coin stems from. Because if you buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, technically Coinbase owns your Bitcoin because you don't own the private key. Right. It's not until you withdraw that Bitcoin off of Coinbase onto your own wallet that you're now given access to the private key associated with the public key, which is effectively just saying how much Bitcoin is on your wallet. Sure. So this is um, a level of self-sovereignty. It's like a phrase that continues to pop up when, with Bitcoin. Um, you have to maintain the safety of these assets yourself. So it's almost sure. like, think about someone who buys gold. Like they have to have a safe to store it or they have to have a gun to shoot somebody who comes on their property. Or they have to dig it in their backyard in a way that no dig, bury it where nobody will ever find it. Sure. They have to provide their own security. And so, yes, when you're leave, when you're sending your dollars from your checking account to Coinbase to buy to buy Bitcoin, you're losing your FDIC insured status under the bank account, and you're now going over to a network where if you lose your private key. <coughs> You lose access to your Bitcoin permanently. Right. Now, there's... Which is part of the risk of investing in Bitcoin, right? Huge risk, but also it's part of the reasons why there are rewards. Yeah, right. You're, uh, the relationship we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah, and, and what's funny is there's only going to ever be 21 million Bitcoin that are ever mined. It's, it's written into the code. But, you know, humans are fallible, and it's estimated that anywhere from one to three million out of the 21 million Bitcoin are permanently lost because people lost access to their private keys. They accidentally threw away their computer that held their Bitcoin wallet and they didn't store a backup. So, you know, the thing that could hurt your personal wealth also makes the asset more scarce and therefore more valuable. Mm. which is kind of like a fucked up game theory way of thinking about this. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, it almost has a, it's like a reverse inflation. I mean, it's it's something that will only ever have a fixed amount ever printed, but the actual amount that people have access to decreases over time, mm -hmm. inevitably. Yeah. And so instead of increasing inevitably over time by governments printing money or whatever, the it actually inevitably will become more and more valuable. Yeah. Which is not the relationship that we normally have with money, right? Right, because the, the, the money that we have to buy things and spend things with is inflationary. The government could just print as much as they want, um, which is also why they took us off the gold standard in 1971. 
you know, every dollar was backed by X amount of gold uh, right. before 71. And then they took us off the standard, which created what a fiat currency is. And a fiat currency is essentially unbacked by anything other than the government that prints it. Sure. So um, this is why not your keys, not your coins is a big deal. And if you do go into cryptocurrency and you want to um, manage all this yourself, it's imperative on the individual to understand the risks that they're undertaking if they don't have a backup in place or any other way to access the private key other than like what they stored in their computer or if they didn't even back it up. Yeah. Because there's no bank you can call if you lose access to your wallet. You're screwed. Right. Which is, you know, not something that people are accustomed to, right? That is like a a, a level of personal autonomy in the world where you're like, I have to protect my own assets actively, right? Mm-hmm. I can't just like park them in a bank and they're good. Um, <laughs> which, I mean, arguably is not the case anymore because you park them in a bank and you're actually losing value on a day-to-day basis. But you know, the concept was that, you know, hey, I park this in the bank and it's safe, right? Like, right. I, d- I don't have to worry about this. Um, I don't have to worry about somebody breaking into my home, right? Yeah. Because there's this entity that's like taking on all that risk for me and they're really good at this. And thing. it's FDIC insured for up to $250,000. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting, actually, that $250,000 limit because really those sorts of things start having less value to people that are very, very wealthy. Right. Um, which seems to be the reason that the very wealthy are very much asset-based versus, like, currency-based, mm-hmm. right? It's like uh, asset is inevitably more protected than a currency that, doesn't have any true backing. Yeah. Um, This is also why I really like uh, what's happening now with DeFi because historically, you know, like how do the super wealthy continue their wealth? They don't, they take loans out on their assets and then they pay back the loans and the interest associated with the loans rather than selling their assets that have accumulated X amount and then they'd have to pay taxes on them. Right. So like Elon Musk, he takes loans out against his Tesla stock and then he lives off that and pays it back with his income when he gets it, um, as opposed to like selling his Tesla stock so he has cash. So that's a trick of the wealthy is instead of incurring these sales that would have capital gains taxes, they're now just taking out loans against their assets and paying like an interest rate. But like that interest rate is nothing compared to what they would spend on capital gains tax for um, their assets. And so, you know, this has been a trick for the uber wealthy for so long. I think uh, there was a New York Times article that came out last year that looked over like 35 billionaires and how they avoided taxes. And like, this is the overwhelming trick for the uber wealthy is to just take out loans on your assets and pay down that loan. And your assets will have increased in value you know, Absolutely. while you were paying that down. So, like, historically, it was like, well, what the fuck? This is, you know, this is fucked. Like, w- the rich are going to continue to get richer. But what the beauty of these protocols are is now we can replace those processes 
And instead of using like Tesla stock, we can just use Ethereum or Cosmos or Luna or Bitcoin to take loans out against that for US dollar and then just pay that back over time. And, you know, if you think cryptocurrency is only going to go up, then that's a foolproof sort of plan because the underlying asset is increasing in value. So like the loan you took out is already a lower like loan to value ratio than when you initially took it out. That's a really interesting point. And so basically you're treating Bitcoin as an asset that will inevitably go up in value. So it, it, it's the same as, you know, if you're making a bet on real estate mm -hmm. and you're saying, well, you know, I, I can get a 3% interest rate loan and I'll buy this piece of real estate. And I believe that in the next, you know, 10 years, it's going to go up like more than the amount of interest that I had to pay on it. And therefore it becomes like a growth asset. Yeah. Um, and using Bitcoin just as an alternative asset, which makes a ton of sense. Um, but a, a point that I would also like to bring up is that I think people don't realize how much access they have to debt, mm -hmm. right? And actually a, a fallacy that I think a lot of people are taught is that debt is actually like a bad thing, mm -hmm. you know? Like you shouldn't have debt, you should be debt free and that's the way to, you know, like debt, you're having to pay interest on that. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know, like you're losing money. And it's like, well, it's like, yeah, if you, if you take out a loan and you do frivolous things with that money, you blow it. Yeah, sure. That's an idiotic thing. Yeah. But if you are saying, oh, okay, hey, um, I want to borrow somebody else's energy to do a task, right? And... I think what they're doing right now isn't as valuable as what they could be doing. And if I'd redirect their energy to this more valuable thing, then they reap a reward and I reap a reward. Right. And, and that is essentially what taking a loan out is, right? You're redirecting energy towards an aim, more energy than you had available to you before. Mm -hmm. And provided that you effectively redirected that energy in a more productive way, then you make profit off of that differential between what the energy of those people was going into before and what the energy of those people is going into now. Mm -hmm. And so it seems like ultimately what I'm hearing through all of this is this is a mechanism of redirecting energy into systems that people think are ultimately more stable and actually more beneficial to them than the systems that they're per currently participating in. And if they're correct in their bet on this system being more stable and more beneficial, then over time they reap rewards from the differential in those two systems. Yeah, so the what you're bringing up is the difference between re like consumer debt and corporate debt. So the consumer takes out debt to buy a TV, and right. that's not an asset that will generate income for them, whereas the corporation takes out debt and then deploys it to an economically beneficial system that will generate income. Right. So, A, there's this lack of understanding about what people should use debt for. And, and I'm, I'm coming from the... Um, 
I was like, I'm going to stay debt-free for as long as possible for a long time. And I thought debt was the enemy. And I'm just coming around now to seeing how when you take out a loan in a proper way, it can be used to generate income and it can be good. I don't think, and we brought this up earlier with like personal finances not being taught in schools. Like the average American can cannot and should not take out a loan because they're going to use it to buy bullshit that just puts them further into debt. Right. Now, this is also kind of skirting along the lines of like who gets granted access to what and how we were talking earlier about how like being a homeowner meant that you increased your assets and value during the pandemic after all this money was printed. But like you had to be savvy enough to save your money and not spend it, spend it on frivolous shit. You had to be savvy enough to like navigate and maneuver the home buying process. Sure. Which is in itself filled with all sorts of third parties who are like trying to get involved in all this. But once you did that and now you have a home with equity, you can take out a line of credit against it and you can open a new business doing that. Just like you can also use it to buy a brand new boat, which will probably mean you'll get foreclosed on unless like you got some like plan in the future. But this is an issue with people taking out debt for consuming things rather than using it to like earn interest or get put back to work. So while I agree the majority of America doesn't know like about good ways to use debt, I would also argue that like maybe the majority of America shouldn't be taught on how to take out debt because they're just not ready to be able to handle it in using like a business-like mentality with it. I don't doubt that if like you took out a HELOC on your home that you would probably use it for something that either makes sense or that you could pay off or you know you have a plan for it. Sure. Majority of people I don't think do. Yeah, yeah. And but I think that's partially education, right? I mm-hmm. mean, I, I, we were talking before earlier in our conversation that we aren't taught about finance in yeah. school at all. Personal finance, corporate finance, any type of finance, right? No, People don't understand how the financial system works. They don't understand how the stock market works generally. I mean, unless they teach themselves, right? Mm-hmm. That's the only way really as an American. You either go to college for it or you teach yourself. If you don't do those two things, you're not going to learn about these things. And so it's like, or, or your family happens to be knowledgeable and they teach you. Mm-hmm. Um, but most people aren't fortunate enough to have a family that has been through a bunch of this stuff and understands it and is going to just teach you directly. So they're just left in the lurch. Yeah. And so for me, it's not so much that like, hey, like you don't have enough discipline in order to do intelligent things it's that you aren't like educated on how to direct your energy in beneficial ways and so when you aren't educated on how to direct your energy in beneficial ways you're going to behave in whatever random way you think is going to benefit you the most and because you're an individual and you're not like participating in a system that's in place that's meant to drive society's behaviors you're just being swept along and whatever random thing happens to you happens to you. It might be good. It might be bad. It might be neutral. But when you're educated about whatever the ecosystem is that you're 
existing within, you have more inherent control over the direction of your life. Mm -hmm. And so I think why people are left uneducated is because they're easier to control when they are. They're easier to manipulate, right? And, you know, so, hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to deny that, like, systems are here to direct people's behavior. That's what they're here to do. And if you have a group of people that will just kind of get, like, tugged along in whatever direction, that, that's not, like, a hard group of people to control. And this is it comes back to another point that we were talking about earlier around the division between groups of people in a society, right? It's like the, the more you drive a wedge between people and the more you divide them, the easier both groups are to control. And so, you know, we, we are always pitted in this battle against con like controlling our own life and being controlled by others. Yeah. And I mean, like, this is, I, I feel like this is the culmination of a lot of what we were talking about. And, um, you know, like a lot of like my anti-institutional stances stem from the fact that like banks are predatory on making sure we don't understand this. And if I'm participating in an institution or we could replace institution with network, if I'm participating in an institution and or network, that is actively like trying to screw people over, then inherently it's a negative thing that I don't want to be a part of. And that's what I think like a lot of America is built off of is, or at least like a lot of financial s systems in America is built off of is this ignorance of a lot of the people who are participating in it. So this is why I love Bitcoin, but this is also the thing that is kind of it's Achilles heel is you have to go out and you have to teach yourself this stuff, which was already an issue for people who didn't know any of this to begin with. So it's almost right. like you have to be told there's something that you have to research when you don't even know that you have to look for someone to tell you that there's something that you need to research. So, right. <laughs> so you know... Um, it's like, I, I don't know what I need to know to know what I need to know to do the thing I need to do. <laughs> right, but then once you know and like... You know, if you're kind of like me, man, and you took the red pill and you see how things are, once, like, you've deduced the way that larger systems operate and the opportunities that these peer-to-peer open-source networks are offering, you can start to see ways in which people are building replicas of current and existing systems. And if you're in the know, and in this instance in the know is knowing how to buy Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and take them off the wallet and use these networks then you can start participating in things that are only available to millionaires and billionaires in today's systems because these very same processes were replicated in cryptocurrency right. and, and in cryptocurrency ecosystems. But again, this is one of those like, um, uh, it's like a, a tale that is self-perpetuating. It, it continues to, to, to like not go anywhere because the way that you grow these networks is by getting people into them, but people don't even know that they need to start asking these questions to arrive at these networks. And so that's why when it might sound like too good to be true that I'm getting 100% interest on assets, this is why. Because the stuff is available 
to a large population, but only a small population is taking advantage of it. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, I mean, and, and that's ultimately the same relationship that we have between billionaires and everyone else in regular society as well. I mean, it's, it's more of a, you know, driven by how much capital you have. It's not necessarily uh, driven by how many people are actively trying to participate, but the ratio is the same, right? Like, and oftentimes a small number of actors that is playing in a space benefits over everyone else that isn't playing in it at all. Right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, bringing this around to just the, the concept in, in the general sense seems to be we are looking for a way to opt out of a system that we believe is flawed and to create a new system that is more reliable and is in, more in our best interest. And therefore, we no longer have to trust these institutions that we don't actually believe in the validity of their behavior. Um, and we're putting our bet on the validity of this network over the validity of the government that is backing a currency, right? I, I think the best way that I would describe it is we're creating an alternative network that can operate in unison or separately with what already exists. And so this is just a way to um, get a lifeboat or it's a way to hedge against traditional financial institutions. But I personally don't think that like cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin are going to replace current institutions because of their own strength. I think these things will save us if current institutions and processes like fail spectacularly. That makes sense. That makes sense. So it's like a it's a it's an alternative network that's, you know, not necessarily designed to replace but outlast. And and I think this is something that is hard for most people to wrap their heads around and I know it has been for me and I'm I'm still trying to but it's this concept of bitcoin as a storer of value mm -hmm. but also as an an asset right because there's a inherent dichotomy between those two things you're like well is it a storer of value or is it a growth stock you know yeah and it's it's both um because of its behaviors, but it, that's not the way that like traditional financial objects work. So it's a, a little counterintuitive in that way. Um, but it's also interesting because what you're protecting against is like catastrophic sociological failure in a way. And, but you're simultaneously creating alternate networks that something can actively be done with. Mm -hmm. I think um, in the best case scenario, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are just an alternate network. In the worst case scenario, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies become the de facto network for how the world operates global commerce. And that's a scary world because the dollar in the U.S. has failed. Right. And here's the thing, right? Like, God, I hope that never fucking happens. Yeah. But 
it's not beyond the scope of possibility that if we don't play our cards right in the world, that we could be usurped as the world power. Mm-hmm. I mean, China, holy fuck, right? Like, they are amassing huge amounts of influence in the world. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. has kind of been sitting on their haunches and just kind of being like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're, we're the world power. We don't really have to, like, you know, worry too much. Like, all global you know, cold wars are over. Like, that's not going to happen any any further. Mm-hmm. Um, while you've got these, like, you know, multi-generational totalitarian governments that are planning, you know, 40, 50, 60 years in the future on strategy on how to gain more power and influence mm-hmm. on a global stage. And... These other systems are definitely worse than ours, right? Yeah. Like, they have way fewer human rights. And to me, that's like a measure of how good a system is. And it's like, okay, well, you know, if, we, if we're not actively competing against entities like that, we're eventually going to be controlled by the philosophy that that society is driven by Mm -hmm. and um you know i think that this is why i love cryptocurrencies because if the united states becomes a country that fails and i want to get out um like let's look at what's happening with other failing countries right now with residents who have anything of value that are trying to get out they're being shaken down at their borders by border agents you know right and with cryptocurrencies, all I need to remember is like a set of numbers and letters in my head, and I can cross, I can cross the border with millions of dollars just stored in my head. That's amazing. So you don't actually have to have a physical hardware wallet. Mm-mm. So all a key is is um, all you have to do is like load up another like the same wallet software for bitcoin and type in your seed phrase or your private key which is a string of alphanumeric numbers and you're granted access to your portion of cryptocurrency assets associated with that wallet so the only thing a wallet is is a location where you store your key now all a wallet is is uh x amount of like uh, like x amount of like assets on the network were sent to this public key and then here's this private key that has access to this public key so but which part of that is the wallet is it where the the private key is stored the wallet is um where you type in your private key and then it and then it remembers you like a username kind of like if you log into a website like a google chrome app okay and then you're logged in after you log in the same thing with a wallet once you type in your private key then it connects you directly with your public key which is your access to all your cryptocurrency okay so if you you could just load like i could take my computer that i have sitting here and load the crypto algorithms onto it and then enter my key into that like program that's on my machine Mm. and it will give me access to the bitcoin that is on the network that is mine theoretically yeah so the easiest way would be like uh well so you would download this google chrome app called metamask we'll use ethereum because 
this is the easiest way to understand. You would download a Chrome app called MetaMask and you would create a new account. And by creating this new account, you open up a new wallet. And in that wallet is associated your private key and your public key. Now, you have to write down your private key and the, the account information in case you ever like lose this laptop and you need to download another MetaMask on another computer and gain access to your crypto, you would just input the private key, which grants you access to your public key. So in this instance, you would download the Google Chrome app called MetaMask, you would create your own wallet, and then you would send the cryptocurrency from Coinbase to the wallet on MetaMask. Mm. And now the MetaMask is just acting as the application that allows you to send and receive cryptocurrency. But what really happened is on when you created a new account on the MetaMask wallet, you effectively created a new wallet on the Ethereum network where when you send assets to that wallet on the Ethereum network, then the private key associated with your MetaMask is the only key that can send and receive those assets. Okay, so that makes sense. And so if your computer, like if like your house floods and you break your computer, but you were able to save your private key, typically like write it down and save it somewhere safe or come up with a really safe storage strategy. Remember it. Then you can input that into a brand new MetaMask on a brand new laptop and you'll gain access. It'll be like relogging into your account. Sure. And you'll gain access to the cryptocurrency that was stored on the previous MetaMask. That makes sense. That makes sense. So <laughs> that's a really cool concept. And I think that's a, a thing that I didn't really understand about the functional underpinnings. And I think that's a point of confusion for a lot of people on like, how are you doing transactions, right? Like that's the big mysterious bit, right? It's like, okay, you've got Bitcoin. It's in a wallet. What's a wallet? Is it yeah. like, is it like, do I actually have the physical Bitcoin on my computer? Um, or, you know, how does this work? Yeah. Um, but really it's that because you're not running a validation node, all you really have is that you have logged into the network that is validating all transactions from this machine. And you could theoretically log into that network from any non-validating point. Correct. It's called a light client, like light, L-I-G-H-T. Because it's just like a light piece of software that allows you to connect to the network. Right, right. That yeah. makes sense. So I really need to pee. Um, <laughs> do you want to take this opportunity to... Um... I have to go see my lady friend. Okay, cool. <laughs> oh my God, it's 940. Yeah, we got into it. Yeah, we sure did. Um, um yeah, man. I mean, I think we said that we did not want to do a four-hour podcast, and here we are three hours and 40 minutes later. I, I believe that's what <laughs> happened, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, hey, man, when you're having a good conversation, I, it's hard to set it down. I mean, I, I've personally learned a shit ton. I appreciate you coming on and teaching me a bit about, you know, this very interesting world that you have tons of knowledge on. So bow to you and thank you for that. And uh, really look forward to sharing this conversation with the community and yeah, allowing them to learn from your knowledge. So hats off and um, look forward to, hopefully we get to have further conversations in the future because this sounds like a rabbit hole that goes really fucking deep. And I think, I mean, I would like to do 
any part that I can and helping pe- people figure that out, myself included. So, uh, let me know if you want to have further conversations. I'll keep bugging you about it. I'm always down to talk more. Um, I think, if anything, this conversation illuminated how vast and how hard it can be to understand this cryptocurrency stuff. But like when it starts to click, it starts to click. I think that anybody can participate in this stuff, and it's a way for us to break the mold of whatever we don't like about current systems, institutions, whatever it is, now is an opportunity for people to participate in the very beginning of a new network. And I hope that um, these sort of processes get people more incentivized to care about, you know, what they participate in. And um, yeah, I'd love to come back on and uh, spend another three and a half hours talking about this stuff. Hell yeah, dude. Hell yeah. Well, uh, Dylan, much appreciated. And uh, we'll talk with you soon. Cheers. Cheers. And with that, Dylan has left the building. Wow. Uh, What a mind-opening conversation. I feel like I'm at a 0.5 out of 100 in my total understanding of cryptocurrencies, but that conversation definitely ripped my mind open to the potential of the space. I hope you found the conversation as illuminating as I did. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a like, give us a share, and if you're really feeling swifty, leave us a review. All of this goes incredibly far to support the show, especially at the early stages like we're in. So really su- appreciate the support, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Much love.